You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. (laughs) Oh, this has been quite the beginning of a Big month. It's December. It's the holidays. And I am feeling it. I am feeling it. We're we're off to the finish lines of 2023, final month of 2023. And it's a good month. So far, so good. I've been traveling. Okay. I've been traveling through Um, so much, so much to talk about, so much to catch up on. And I'm excited. This is going to be quite the episode um, because there's lots of tea. Um, I feel like when it's the end of the year, it's like that grand season finale. You know, this is going to be the final, you know, run of shows before we go to season six. And this month marks the three-year anniversary of Earnestly Speaking. If you all remember, I started off with a special, you know, preview episode at the end of 2020. And who would have thought that I would have been kicking off season one the first episode, I believe, the, the first major episode of season one was the insurrection. Like we came into the first season of this show dealing with a situation when Americans were trying to cancel America. And here we are nearly three years later. And, you know, we didn't seen all kinds of things. Um, but here we are, it's December, and it's been a month. It's It's been a month already, lots of tea, lots of stuff. I cannot wait. So first off, let's get into my traveling. I went to Detroit, I went to Delaware, and I did it all in 48 hours. So my cousin, my favorite cousin, Rachel, had got married. Um, her husband is Juwan Mosby. I said Juwan, I never heard of Juwan in a long time. They're from Detroit, so clearly... Uh, but Juwan Mosby and her, they got married, um, at a cathedral, a really nice cathedral. I think it's called Mary Grove Conservancy was where we was at. Um, if anybody from Detroit knows about Mary Grove, it's a very, I mean, it's a very nice space. I mean, they had the whole wedding there. Um, she went to the University of Michigan and so she's a Spartan and so she had the Spartan mascot and it was like, go green. And, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm an Ivy League, you know, we, we, we're not like crazy sports people over in the Ivy League. So when I heard about this, I was like, they're really into this football, but I hear Michigan, Michigan State, I think it's Michigan. No, she goes to Michigan State. Oh, there's a big difference. Let me clarify that. She goes to Michigan State. She does not go to the University of Michigan. Ooh, 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 I know she'll get mad at me. And apparently that's a big deal over there. Like, I, look, that's how y'all know I don't know nothing about the football. Uh, <laughs> so she goes to Michigan State. They go green. And she had the Spartan mascot at her wedding. I mean, she she blew she blew it up. Okay. What a, you know, my, I, I it was just so pretty. Um the food was great. The catering was good. It was a great family affair. Like, it's my family, like, on my grandmother's side. So she's my cousin through her my her father is my mother's aunt, uncle. He's she's yes, her father is my mother's uncle. And he was there 
to, you know, send her off down the aisle. It was a very traditional, classic chapel with the organ, the, the, the church organs, and the pastor was so black. He was very like, you know, y'all need to, you know, he was giving a good old stern lecture about marriage and about sticking together and all of that. And I was like, oh, go ahead. You know, I think we prayed about three times in between. <laughs> this was very, a very traditional wedding, but I enjoyed it. I haven't been, I've, I have never been to a wedding in a church before. Not that I can remember. Um, and none of my friends, you know, we're all heathen. So we, we, none of us had ever envisioned having a wedding in the church. We all are like trying to find venues and I had it at a museum. I guess that's close enough. <laughs> But it was it was it was so fun. It was cute. They had the flowers, the little kids, the flower girls, and all that. We didn't do any of that at our wedding, so it's nice to see the straights do it. It was a very wedding by the straights. Well, yes, traditional in that sense. I've been to. Have I been to any other gay weddings? Yes, I have. Um, Kenji and Tiffany, my friends from college, they got married. But again, it was on a boat. It was not in a church. And then everyone else I know didn't do it like we yeah it was very like you know at cute venue spaces and stuff not all of the pomp and circumstances this was that this was very much that and i enjoyed it it was very it was just it was so pretty and i love her a lot she came to my wedding so for those who went to my wedding you might have met rachel she was definitely there she had a really dark navy dress but this time of course she wore an off-white dress and it was very pretty and it was just so great to see some of my other family members who, you know, I have a, my family is in like three parts of the country mostly. They're in, my immediate family's in Houston, but that's not the route. So I have a contingency of family members from Detroit. I have, of course, a contingency of family from Chicago. And then I have a contingency of family that's from Mariana, Arkansas, which then seg- seg- segues into Texas because, you know, Arkansas and Texas on the border. So that's like my three major family parts are in those three areas of the country. Um, so it's it's been it's fun to see um, relatives in different ways. Like I, when I went to Chicago for my book tour, I got to see my uncle and and that was great. And then I went to Detroit for my book tour, but everyone had gotten COVID. Um, so like no one could come and I was, it was such a bummer. So then of course the wedding happens and it's like that was the reunion, which was great. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so happy for Rachel. It was such a great time. Um, of course, Mr. Johnson came, we took, we saw, they had Christmas trees at the venue and we just could not help ourselves. I, I put up a, a, a holiday card cause the straights love holiday cards. I don't get them. I don't get it. I, I mean, if you have little kids, I suppose, but like, I don't get why people send holiday cards with them in their boo. I mean, maybe a dog. Or something. I don't know. We just is never into it. So we always tease that if we're dressed up somewhere nice and we're and we're in front of a Christmas tree, we'll just post that and I'll be it. So that's what we did. <laughs> um, but yes. So after that, we went to um, Delaware, and you know, we was in Wilmington, Delaware, which um, I was here because, as you all know, as your esteemed favorite food editor, um, you know, I need to. Tra- I like make it a point to travel to the different areas that we cover. So I just don't, you know, as the editor of Eater Philly, we do, you know, shout out to parts of Delaware, South Jersey, and the surrounding suburbs. So I always make it a point to, I've made it a point since I've been in this position to go to these places. I can't go every single week, clearly, 
But I try to go quarterly um, to make my visits, to try the restaurants, see how they're doing, see what's good, see what's hot. Um, and and that, that shapes the way I consider things for lists and things like that. Like I do thorough research. My team do. Like my team of, of freelance writers and folks, we go out to these restaurants. I'm like, listen, we're not the group and I'm not throwing shade, but I'm keeping it 100. We're not the type of people that are going to... Um, you know, get a press release and go, yep, we like that. And that's that. No, we need to sit down. We need to have a meal. We need to be able to enjoy it. See if we like it, see what we don't like. You know, there are places I go that I'm like, "Mm, not feeling that. Not going to tell you all that, but I'm not going to promote it either. So sometimes when I see people get in the comment sections and go, you're forgetting this place or you left out this place. No, baby, I didn't leave it out. I know what it is. I've heard of it. But, you know, wasn't wasn't for me. It wasn't for my writers that, you know, people just wasn't feeling it. We're not going to say who or what, but it's just that when people send that that narrative, it's like, well, you know, listen, I go to dozens upon dozens of restaurants a year and you know, some folks just don't fit the bill and that's okay. Maybe some else likes it. But, you know, what I've noticed in the restaurant scene, at least with writers, even when I think about music writers, right, and people in other fields, there seems to be a parallel of folks that tend to find some consensus on certain things. And then there's a consensus and there's also even a consensus about things we may not like. Now, there might be a couple of outliers where some people might feel one place is overrated and one place is underrated, but We can agree collectively on it. Now, there have been some situations where personally I have fallen out of line with other restaurant folk in the town about a certain place where I'm like, y'all don't see it. And there's reasons why cultural, there's age reasons. There's, you know, I'm in a space that's dominated by a lot of older white men or a lot of younger white women. (laughs) <laughs> and that's just white people. It's it's not that much diversity. You can find one or two or three black folks across the region that do food coverage in this way. I mean, my team definitely has hired and diversified our, our group to make sure it's reflective of different people from different backgrounds. But a lot of folks just don't. I think of one place in particular, Restaurant Alexander. I'm I'm, I'm normally I'll name names, but I'm gonna do it this time. Restaurant Alexander in Rittenhouse. Craig LeBond had wrote a, a scathing review about it. This was over a year ago when they first opened. And I just had to disagree with him. I just think he doesn't understand what these two young black men are doing in that restaurant. And, you know, he's been around. You know, he's an OG. I respect the OGs. But I just disagreed with him. I just felt like you don't, you, you, you know, listen, everybody's taste is different. Everybody's palate is different. That's why you need to have a diversity of people in this business that can understand it. I was right in the sense that through time, that restaurant has, has tremendously, has has just gotten a larger in mass and interest. And people will credit me for that. And they will even credit me for partially that influence. But I want. I think that to me, when a rest, when a new restaurant comes out, I just feel like sometimes people are really quick to just say no or just to shut it. And I think you miss a lot of context when you do that. You you miss the nuances. You gotta. You know. To me, you gotta let a restaurant breathe for three months. And and even at that point, you gotta also recognize what are the challenges that particular restaurants or even even the chefs there are experiencing. Like their chef Montana Houston and their chef. Jameer Wimbley Cole, these are, you know, they are two 
great black male chefs that have come from places like 11 Madison Park. Like they're not some rookies. They're young. One is 27, one is 23. But they've come from some really good stock and have worked in other restaurants across the region. And so I sometimes feel like, you know, you can try a dish or one or whatever, and it can be something different. And you may not understand or embrace what makes that different. But I recognize it. I peeped it. I said, oh, I get it. And I love it. Like, I love that restaurant. Like, it is just, I mean, what it represents, what it means, where it's located. You know, you're in an area like Rittenhouse. It's not that many black chefs in Rittenhouse. It's not that many top black chefs that are cooking food like that. You know, they had challenges. They were they replaced the old V Street, which is Rich Landau's vegan restaurant. You know, he owns Ground Provisions in Jersey, and he also owns, of course, a legendary veg. You don't get to, you were placing a restaurant like that. You got some heavy shoes to fill. Because let's be clear, V Street didn't close because of sales. They closed because their staff was trying to unionize and all that didn't, you know, crank up the way it's supposed to be. And fun fact, um, Rich Landau is the brother of Rue Landau, who is the city councilwoman, who's about to be in city council, the first openly LGBTQ member of Philadelphia City Council elected openly. That is her brother. Did y'all know that? Fun fact. See that? But I say all this to say they had some heavy shoes to fill. Plus, they're in an area of Rittenhouse that's like Zama is on that strip that they're next to. They're right next to Zama. They're in the heart. And so you could go to a bunch of restaurants in Rittenhouse and forget about this place. But the fact that word of mouth and, and people recognizing the uniqueness of what they're doing and how they're cooking in that area, they've been able to really generate masses. It really touched my heart when I went to Restaurant Week with my friend Amanda. And we you know, had dinner there. And she was just wowed by it. And I think that was her first time eating it just like the main dinner, like no special dinners and things. Like we went there for special events and things, but that was her first time having like a, st- a standard dinner there. And she was just wowed, you know? And and the dessert she loved, I remember she loved that dessert. And remember there was a whole, yes, yes, yes. She she loved that dessert. And I just remember, you know, and that moment was like, see, it, it somebody gets it. Like what they're doing, like it's 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 a contemporary Euro- European cuisine, but they also give it this splash of like this this black soul food edge that just gives it a nice little a little a little a little pizzazz in it, and it's just it, it's great. This is great. I just yeah. But again, you sometimes can go against the fray. Like I don't want to go into restaurants that I think are overrated in this town, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there are a couple of restaurants where people just be gassing it up. And I'm just like, you know, I know another restaurant in this city that serves this better. I digress. I'm going to move on. We're going to come back to this a little bit, but there's so many things. <laughs> okay. So, went to Delaware. We went to Baria, um, Baria Steaks. I think it's called, I think it's called Bardia. Is it Bardia Steaks? I should know this because it was an incredible restaurant. So I I'm I loved that place. So this was they this is a brand. Um it's Bardia. It's Bardia Steak. That's what it's called. Bardia Steaks, Bardia Steak. They um are in Wilmington, Delaware. They have two locations. It's Bard well, they have a bunch of places apparently, but it's Bardia um food and drink and there's Bardia Steaks. They're right next to each other. But we went to Bardia Steaks and we did the tasting menu. And listen. Top tier, baby. Top tier. 
top tier. It was it was incredible. It, I, I, there's nothing like this in Philly. Like I really that tasting menu, baby. We had it with a wine pairing. We were out. We were out. Mr. Johnson and I came home. Or came to our hotel. Which sidebar? We went to the ho- we went to Hotel Dupont, which I've always loved. It is the best hotel in Delaware. I have to. I'm just gonna let. It, I'm just gonna make it plain. It is the best hotel in Delaware. There might be some other cute hotels, but Hotel Dupont is the best. It's a classic, baby. Okay, it's been here for 125 years, um, and it's gorgeous. It's grand. It's magnificent. It is. It is top tier. Let me just put it that way. It is. It is top tier. It's a great restaurant. Great vibes, and you know the food is great. Um, they have a yeah, they have a restaurant here called La Caviar, which we're going to talk about them as well. Um, another great restaurant. Um, but let me let me just say this. Let me let me get into just so much. So let me let me back up. Um, there's so much going on. So this hotel is a classic um, and love this hotel. Hotel DuPont is a classic. Love the bathrooms, love the space. It's got this vintage feel. It's historical. It's a ma- American. To me, it's it's a, the architecture and the way it's been done. A lot of grand people have stayed here. I believe Nally Wood, the actress Nally Wood stayed here, but it's very grand. It's given like an old hotel, a Hollywood hotel, but just so... M- they modernize it a little bit, but it's beautiful. It's classic. The furniture and everything about it is just so great. Architecture in there is gorgeous. A very beautiful historic hotel. But we got back home and we were just knocked out. I mean, the food was rich. Everything in there was great. They have a great chef there that's only 31 years old. Shout out to all the young chefs out here. Um, he was James Beard nominated. And he just, I mean, he just, he he's just awesome. I mean, I was like, I see Delaware. Delaware's food scene may not have a lot of restaurants, but the ones they do have in Wilmington, specifically Wilmington, is definitely a standout. I mean, I, I just got to give props where props are. Um, his name is Antimo uh, Domino. Um, yeah, I think it's like Italian, but his name is um, Antimo, Antimo um, Domino. And this man can cook his ass off. He can cook his ass off. I mean, we had short rib risotto with a steak that it was a Wagyu short rib and it was delicious. I mean, the flair, the flavor, everything about it was just grand. Oh, my goodness. It was so many things. I mean, he's got spaghetti with caviar on top. He he just he was doing it. OK, good cuisine, good cuisine. The wine pairings with it. And let me just say this. They all of their wine was red wine. So you know I was I was I was excited because I love red wine. I hate white wine. And when I go to a restaurant, I love when I go to a restaurant and they always ask me where my bottle is. For anyone who goes out to dinner with me, it's always bottled steel. Okay. And if they don't have bottled steel, well, let's just hope it doesn't get there. But every restaurant I go to, I always request bottled steel. And I'm doing two bottles of what I would drink. I would drink the aqua, you know, whatever the aqua, you know what I'm talking about, the aqua quill. It's in that orange white labeling. Or Saratoga in the blue bottle, which I love Saratoga. Saratoga, I don't know where Saratoga came from, but it seems like a lot of restaurants are doing them now. And I love them. I love it. A bottle of Saratoga still, for me, yes. Bottle still, perfection. Two bottles. Either it's going to be the aqua or it's going to be the Saratoga. But I love that when I go to restaurants. And then sometimes there's a, you know, what's the Evian or whatever? Some restaurants do that one. But bottled still, when we start 
and then we go into reds and we go into cocktails and it's a, it's a, it's a ball. But um, really, really loved um, Bardia steaks. I have never been to Bardia food and drink, but I feel like if they're by the same family, they're probably great too. But that steak was phenomenal. It was a really great steakhouse and I really enjoyed it. The next day, which was Sunday, we had brunch at La Caviar, which is always great. Um, and they're located inside of the um, du- Hotel DuPont. They had a 110th anniversary dinner that Mr. Johnson and I attended on Sunday night, Sunday evening. It was great. Oh, my goodness. Truffles. And I mean, it was a classic. I mean, this is French at its finest. La Caviar in the green room, baby. The green room of Hotel DuPont. The 110th anniversary dinner, which was classic. It was a great time. Lovely. And you can see all my photos and everything I ate and how I did on my Instagram page. So, you know, check it out. Um, What else? We went to Longwood Gardens. Um, which was during our during our, our stay in Delaware. It's somewhere in the suburbs in in, in Philly, not Philly, um, in Pennsylvania. But it was like a little cute little twenty minute drive. But we had passes and we checked it out. And it was so cute and romantic. It was a lot of people because it was a Saturday and we are, we're in like peak you know holiday visit mode. But it was nice. It was very pretty. It was like basically it's a nice little cute garden, like a huge, big ass garden. It's like a mansion. And you just walk through and they have all of these Christmas trees and holiday lights and all these spaces with decked out lights that move and change colors. It's a winter wonderland without all the snow and fuss, but just colorful. It's a beautiful light show. It's something that was very different. We've never done anything like that together. Um, cause I'm not really, I mean, I'm an, I'm not really an outdoors girl. But I said, oh, this is something I can do at my pace. And it only works at night. And so we were there right when daylight savings times. I think it was around, we went around like maybe 5.30ish. And it got really dark over there. And the, it was a beautiful light show. So we, we had a good little time there. But Delaware was dope. Delaware was, was really dope. I always forget about Delaware because I always am running to like Atlantic City and Jersey. But Delaware is a cute staycation. Like you could do... What a, a Saturday, Sunday, do a whole a little cute little weekend here. Hit up my two favorite restaurants, which is Bardia Steaks and La Caviar. Stay at Hotel Dupont and have a cute little Delaware trip and, and see Wilmington, a little bit of Wilmington. <laughs> but it's a cute, it's a cute vibe. It was a, it was a cute weekend escape because we. Let me tell you why we did it. Because we were not going to PA Society. For folks that don't know what PA Society is, it's called Pennsylvania Society or PA Society for short. It is the weekend, the first weekend of December, where all of the Pennsylvania elected officials, politicos, consultants, influencers, anybody who's in Pennsylvania politics, right? They go to New York City. They go to the the Wardoff Hotel. And that's where business gets done. All of the behind the scenes smooching and and high browling and, and head bumping and elbow, all of the, the, the political backdoor shit goes down that weekend in New York City. It's been happening for over 100 years. It is a tradition. It is a thing they do. And, you know, there's parties and lobbies and all the groups. Everybody you know is there. Okay? It's like the Met Gala for political corruption. No, I'm joking. Well, I ain't really joking. But it is basically all the politicians, everybody you know, is there. And this is a big year, right? This is the eve of 2024. So 
all the people that's interested in running for Congress and Senator and, and next year's state rep races and, and the new upcoming mayor, right? These are the pillar. This is a big, was a big year. All the big name folks are going. So you're asking yourself, why I, Ernest Owens, was not there? Because I have spies. Joking. I have, <laughs> not joking. Um, Because honestly, I've went once. And I just find it to just be obnoxiously overwhelming and annoying. And I don't, and then the thing is, is that I, maybe I'm in a place where I have connections. So anything I need to know, I don't have to go. I, I can, I can find out very shrewdly from folks. I can get the phone call and get the tea and find out what I need to know. I don't have to be there in present. And also, you know, Mr. Johnson and I, I like, I like, we need to, we could take a little time. This could be the opportunity for us to do something cute together because, I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time for the highs, but I was like, you know, he is a comms director at city council. So, you know, he could have went, but we just was like, mm. so the wedding was our way out to be, to be honest, because we, we, the wedding was like, yes. And I didn't want to go from the wedding to New York. I was like, nah. So then what we did was we went to the wedding and then we went to the wedding and like we got to Detroit like around 3, 3 p.m. on Friday. The wedding was at 6 Friday night. And then we took a, a flight at like, I want to say 11 a.m. on Saturday. Got back to Philly at 1230. We had our car at the airport parking lot drove straight to Delaware, which was only about like 30 minutes from the airport. And we were settled in. We didn't go to New York. I just was like, "Mm mm-mm, too overwhelming, too nosy, too messy. Nope. And we didn't go. We didn't go. We was happy. I mean, PA side is PA side. I did get some good tea about some things, but it wasn't worth the hustle and bustle and the fussle and all the fakeness too. I mean, there's some people we like clearly, but I just, oh, it's just so fake because people, they see you at places that they don't think they're going to see you at. Then everybody gets all like, how did you get here? What the fuck? Like, I used to hate that. Like, when I go to parties or, or events and people are like, oh, how did you get here? How did you get here? <laughs> like, that's the real question. I don't know why you're asking me why I'm here. Like, I don't think there should be, anyone should be questioning me about anything I'm at. I think it's just rude. I think it's the weirdest thing to do. It just gives off hater vibes. I'm like, you just see a person somewhere and you're like, oh, how did you get here? Um, Hello. Good evening. How are you? Like, did we lose manners when we walked in the door? I don't understand. Um, I, I just, I just want to see people do that. I think it's weird. I, I'm, I'm normally like, I don't care. I'm like, if I see someone I know, I'm like, hello, how are you doing? You know, whatever. But it's always this, 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 you know, oh, how did you get here? And, 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 and then hear from white people specifically, it's so, it just comes all very racist. It's like a weird, how did you get here? What are you doing here? You know, they add another word to it and it gets really weird. How did you get here? You know what I'm saying? It gets real weird. gets real weird at that point. But yeah, I just I'm just I I think I'm at this point where I'm like I'm 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 able to be about 90% selective about where I choose to go and being okay with not going certain places for if if the value of it regardless of whatever the hype is. I'm 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 also challenging that for my friends and people I work with like People are out there, oh, you should do this. It's a good look. It's a good look. It's like, how many things are going to be a look? I need a thing. I need a good thing out of it. Like, I need something tangible. A good look is getting old. 
And I recognize this year, this year has been a telling year for me where you can do all the things to dress something up or try to appease people by the look or the presence of something. But at the end of the day, people want what they want and people, and if you're not going to deliver it, don't waste people's time. If you're not going to change, don't waste people's time. You know, you, you know, I recognize and I can accept that there are certain people in this world who does not want to see me thrive and succeed because what I represent threatens them and it makes them uncomfortable and it makes them it, 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 it triggers their insecurities about what they didn't achieve in their own lives or what they haven't done or what they think about people and race and sexuality and age and things. I do that for some people. And there's a lot, there's a lot of successful people that do that. And for whatever reasons, whether it's black women or black queer people, whatever, there's an infatuation with our success and our excellence in a way that challenges people. It can inspire people to do great things and, and be a better person, which I think is hopefully, which one would love to be the case. But sometimes it can also trigger people's insecurities and make them, you know, be, you know, resentful in ways and lash out and act out in ways that is not only detrimental to themselves, but those around. And that sucks. That sucks. You know, I, I've definitely have experienced that. And there were times I used to say to myself, well, what can I do to fix that? Or, And I realized I can't fix that. That's a personal problem for someone. You know, we 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 oftentimes think about what it means to um, dim our own lights or reduce them. And I've heard stories about women who do that and other folks that that feel like, oh, I got to, you know, you know, turn tone it down or whatever. And then you realize that. The person that recognizes you doing that only feels worse because then they feel like you're recognizing them to be insufficient or inferior even if that's not what you're trying to do, they receive it that way, right? If a person's not well in the mind around their confidence, they're going to pick up on that and even feel worse because now they don't feel like they have a leveling plane because in their head, everything is a competition. And when you're dealing with a person that comes from a mindset that everything's a competition, they can't thrive that way. They can't. <laughs> they just can't. I mean, it's okay to be competitive in some regards, but some situations, is it really a competition? Or is it your is it your marathon, is your race, and you should fucking run your own race? We could talk about that too, but you know, what do I know? Um, I think about um, just certain situations, you know, recently where I, I realized that's your personal shit. That's not mine. And, and, and that's just what it was. You know, um, I think about like just massive amount of criticism that celebrities or people I look, I like, I want to say look up to some of them, but I think about Lil Nas X, like he, whatever Lil Nas X do for whatever reason, it gets folks that claim they're unbothered or don't care what he do to feel like they need to say something. And they need to respond and react to any little thing you do. And I know he's trolling them. And I think it's hilarious. And they fall for it every time. And it's like, listen, Lil Nas X isn't for you. And that's okay. Like even Beyonce. Like, oh my God, people just can't shut the fuck up about Beyonce. It's like, okay, there are folks that are showing joy for Beyonce in the, in the movie, which we're going to talk about. And they just feel like they have to make it a point to tell people, oh, they don't like the movie. They, they, they're not going to go see it or they don't like it. And it's like... Well, that's okay if you don't like it. I mean, it's fine. It's, she's an artist, an entertainer. She's not like an official. She's not somebody you have to vote for or have to elect. I mean, let people have their fucking joy. I just don't. I'm at a point where I just don't get 
that. And so I feel like there are the people, and I look at the people that do have that level of critique for her. And it's not even critique, but the, sh- the hate for her. And I look at them and I go, hmm, that makes sense. But there's something about people in that way. Like when they look at themselves, they, 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 you know, because it's like even me, like I've tried to figure out why there is this, like when I look at the folks that have the most shit to say about me, it's a pattern, y'all. It's a pattern. It's either these like middle-aged, old, grumpy white men. They are like, that are like either well-educated or not. It don't matter. But they just so bitter. And then there are also like this consistency of older black people that just want to, you know, attempt to humble me or knock me down a notch. But I've noticed that. Like, I don't get too many young people that that, that be hating on me. Not really. I, I'm not, not notably. I mean, there might be a couple that's in the industry that's just jealous. Let's just, we're going to start calling things what they are. I used to not like to say people are jealous, but it's like, you're jealous and it's sad and you need to help yourself. But like you, you can, you can recognize that group, right? But outside of that, I feel like younger people, you know, let me do what I do and they vibe. It's always a couple of haters over there, but not too many. But I noticed that older folks, and it's just, it's the observation. They either get me and love me down, like love me so much that they'll like mail me things and like send me gift cards and shit, or they are just completely like adversarial to the point where it's like, I'm not only going to hate on you, I'm going to try to be a gatekeeper and block you from things. Oh, those are the worst. Like it's like the Karens, they become Karens. Like they're like, I'm going to not only, I'm going to call, I'm going to vent, I'm going to do that much. Because that's how bitter I am with my life and who I am as a person. Yeah. (laughs) I see a lot and I hear a lot. And the things that ground me the most is that when I began to realize that these things are out of my control and all I can do is be my best self and do the best that I can do, that is when the doors was opening and that's when I saw progress personally. And so, yeah. A cool thing happened, and I'm going to give y'all an exclusive listen to this because I think you all should like definitely dive into this. So there had been, and, and honestly, this interview I just did with um, the, you know, the legendary um, Lorraine ballard Morrill. She has a podcast called Philadelphia Community Podcast that she does for iHeart. And, you know, that NABJ Philly group has been on a tour um, <laughs> media tour, and they've been, you know, having, you know, PABJ's name in their mouth, and they can't get enough of it. And I initially wasn't going to respond, and I always will continue to say, "quote The work is the response," because it really is. But you know, a platform like iHeart, you know, you just can't just not have a chance. And there were people, WRD folks like uh, Simon Jones interviewed them where I was just like, okay, it's interesting that I'm seeing these people interview them. Then they, they just started, but nobody was going to give me the common courtesy or the respect to say, this group is talking about your group. You should be able to have a chance to respectfully rebuttal or to comment no, they just let them say what they want. And I and these in these interviews, I heard them. And I was like, these people are over here talking really reckless, and no one was gonna do the common courtesy. So my team reached out to them and said, um, you, you know, there was a lot of uh slanderous things said, and 
you know, our president and our team would like to have a moment to, you know, come on your show respectfully if you're going to call this journalism. Of course, there was no hesitation there because they understood the fairness. But just the matter that they didn't even consider initially to say, look, I got to talk to both. <laughs> it's just funny how people choose the both sides. It's like, either y'all going to stick with the both sides or y'all just not going to do them at all. Like, I mean, which one is it? <laughs> so, say so I have to say, it's been interesting. But I did do this interview, this brief interview on I Heart um, with Lorraine, and I'm going to play it for you because it's, 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 it's not super long, but it's not super short. But I want y'all to hear this um, episode because I think it's important to hear how I put a lot of things in focus and set the record straight on a couple of things. And that's it for me on it. Like at this point, you can send this episode to your friends, anybody. We, 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 we you know, the talking points, the, the statements, the facts are all there. We, we moving forward. And, you know, at this point, it's time to put up a shut up. You know, you can't, there's only so much talking you can do before finally you got to get to the point where you got to put up a shut up. So that's where we are with this. So I'm going to play this interview that I recently did. Check it out. Here it is. I have a great love for the journalists who are members of both the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, as well as the newly formed National Association of Black Journalists, Philadelphia. PABJ recently split from the national organization, and a group of journalists have formed a Philly branch of the NABJ in response. A few weeks ago, I spoke with members of the NABJ Philly affiliate. Today, we speak with PABJ. Joining me right now is Ernest Owens, who's president of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ernest. Thank you so much for having me on. This is this is exciting. I feel as though I'm a little bit of Switzerland here because I did do a recent interview with the newly acquired NABJ Philly affiliate, and uh, and that's different from PABJ. So. Tell us what the, distinguishes the two. The difference is, is that the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists was founded in 1974. We're turning 50 years old. We are our own nonprofit. We're independent. We have our own 501c3. And we are servicing Black journalists in the greater Philadelphia region without any influence or regulations by any other national organizations. Um, NABJ Philly, they're more of a group. I wouldn't necessarily call them an organization. They don't have a 501c3. They don't have a headquarters like we do. And they are pretty much beholden to the National Association of Black Journalists, hence the NABJ portion to the Philly. So the national organization will be regulating and operating a lot of their, their work. They're getting the support of some local black journalists, but everything will be coming up top from the national when it comes to how they move in this city, in this region. You know, we are a grassroots organization. We're homegrown. We're Philly grown. Our voices, our perspectives are more local. We're in the community. We're already in the community and we're building partnerships that does not have to be dictated by a national organization with its own 501c3 that is determining what we do in the Commonwealth. And what's the problem with having NABJ having an influence on policy? Well, it's not so much that they're having an influence. It's a, it's a dictatorship. You know, one of the biggest reasons why PABJ and NABJ had a split is because PABJ was coerced out of NABJ. There was a demand of information from our organization that I believe would have played a role in keeping us in a financial situation that was not beneficial 
My passion about ancestry comes from the fact that I was an only child who didn't have family. I and at that time in 2018, Oregon 2018, our organizational besties. The holidays are meant to be shared with family. Start today during our holiday sale at Ancestry.com. When I became the president, when I got on the board as the vice president and myself and Manny was the president at that time in 2018, our organization was broke. Like we had really no money. We did not have a headquarters. We didn't even have a P.O. box anymore. Our website domain was on the brinks of being basically done. We had nothing going and we had to bring this organization up. We had to fundraise. We had to apply for grants and we're in a very good financial healthy state. Our membership is back. We were getting ourselves out of a bad place that really could have ended us if we came into that in the pandemic. During that time, what we found out was that all of this money that we were raising or we thought we were getting a lot of local funders, supporters, people across Philadelphia that was giving money, big funders that used to give money to PABJ, they were telling us that they were giving the money to NABJ. And they thought that giving the money to NABJ meant that the money was going to trickle down to PABJ. It never did because NABJ has its own 501c3 and we had our own 501c3. And so the moment that our PABJ leadership started to independently fundraise for money and began to inform those in the city that was giving money to NABJ that that money was not hitting PABJ, that's when we started to see some problems with the national organization and how they wanted to dictate how far we flew and how far we were striving. And it came down to a situation where they wanted to have the entire email list of our members. And that included our donors, our benefactors, all these different groups that supported us. And we felt like doing so would compromise our finances. Like you never ask for the donor list or the membership roster of a group of people that of an entire organization. Even if some people may be members of NABJ, some people may not. And so because we had that dispute, they basically threatened that we would not be affiliated with them and as a result of us refusing to give that information, they basically let us know that our status with them was not in compliance. And that put us in a position where we realized we were at an impasse and we became independent at that point. Rather than getting into the weeds of, of all the in, ins and outs of right. the political right. part, I would like to focus on what your mission is now and what your events are and what you hope to do in the future going forward. Well, the work that we continue to do, you know, our organization is about advocacy and access at the end of the day, advocating for black journalists and regardless of whatever newsroom they work in or if they don't work in a newsroom. Our organization is real with the times. The majority of our members are journalists, to be clear, but they're not necessarily journalists that work in a traditional newsroom. I, for one, am a, a journalism. I'm a media entrepreneur. I have my own company. I work with media companies, but I don't work for them. I do contractual work. I do freelance work. I do various ways to make a living and, and have a very profitable life. There are some of our journalists out here, especially for black journalists, that have a revolving door. We see them start in a newsroom, but then sometimes they have to, for financial reasons, go into PR and communications. And then some of them eventually get back to journalism. Our organization is really focused on black journalists and black media professionals and advocating for them, making sure that they are getting proper compensation for their work and making sure that they're in a healthy environment, but also access, giving them 
career development trainings, giving them great work. You know, one of the things that we love that we do every year is our media access event that's coming up in December. And we're so excited that you're going to be a part of that. Uh, one of the panels that we're doing at Philadelphia Community Access Media, that event is free. One of the things we're also doing is increasing access that in our 50th anniversary year, our memberships are free to all eligible media professionals and journalists in the region. We're not charging dues for our members. We're increasing our funding for professional career development events like media access, other events we have throughout the year. But we also understand the importance of joy. So even though it's, you know, we are a professional organization that does take pride in having career development events and, and sending people to conventions and conferences, we also are big on fellowship and joy. So we do have an annual pool party, a holiday event, because a lot of black journalists out here, it's getting tough. You know, the issues that we have to cover, we have to have a space to also celebrate our victories as well. So we're really invested in a, in, a, in a healthy balance. So if people would like more information about PABJ and about your upcoming events, how do they find out more? Absolutely. We're at thepabj.org and we're at PhillyABJ on Instagram and PABJ on Twitter. Um, we're all over social media platforms. We have a robust board and committee that will love for people to join our committees and, and, and stay involved. We make a lot of our events free and accessible to our members. And there's a lot of community events like our media access event that's coming up in December that is accessible to the community as well. And any final words before we close? I want to make it known to people that what I see right now happening in our in our media space and what's happening in the situation is that I see it as a generational difference. You know, I don't consider it beef. You know, these are people that are folks that I've looked up to over the years. And while we may have a difference of opinion on this issue, one thing that I want people to know is that we're seeing a generational shift in our industry. And I want more people to think about what side of history they want to be on. I think it's important for us to recognize that everything must evolve and it doesn't have to be contentious. What I want people to know is that while there are two different organizations, we serve two different purposes because of our fixation on how we plan to liberate and how we plan to represent Philly in the greater region. And people are encouraged to make informed decisions about how they feel about it. But one thing we should never forget is that as black journalists, we have a bigger mission, and that is to advocate and provide access to all. Ernest Owens, president of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. Thank you so much. Thank you. You could. Can- there you go. That that's that was the interview, the full interview. You know, um, I was having to give myself a pound on back. I said, "Listen, I was hitting my points." Okay. <laughs> Shout out to Lorraine for having me on. Um, she was a great interviewer. Um, compared to other people who interviewed me, um, I ain't gonna hold y'all, but Simon Jones just wasn't it for me personally. Um, he just got a bias that he can't let go of when he interviews. Like, I feel like he comes in with a, with a, his own opinion and he won't let it go and, and grow. And I don't know, as someone who interviews people for a living, and you all have heard me interview people on this, on this podcast, there's a certain level where you, you, you kind of hold back to let people get things out. And sometimes, People can surprise you. You might learn something and it may change your 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 viewpoint, but you have to allow yourself to evolve or change your perspective. And I really appreciated how Lorraine just kind of just made it plain, asked the questions and let me have the space to articulate and elaborate on the points I was making. And so I really appreciate her for that because there are other folks who kind of came in with this like 
you know, are you are you interviewing me? Or are you interrogating me? And I feel like that's what people don't understand in interviews. If you're in that position as a journalist, are you interviewing the person or are you interrogating the person? And if it's a situation where a crime has not been committed or there is no ridiculous, egregious scandal, the energy of interrogation should really drop. It really should. Unless you're like if you're interviewing Trump, right, and Trump's coming at you with a certain energy, then I guess you could interrogate Trump on some of the, the heinous things he's said and done. But when you're interviewing a person that you claim to have some level of common decency and respect for, then you need to actually give them the space and the place to fully answer the question and actually frame the question in a way that's actually fair and accurate. Just saying. But, you know, what do I know? I'm teaching grown ass people how to do interviews that act like they've been in the business longer than me, but they still making rookie decisions. And moving on, moving on, moving on. Um, <laughs> love the interview though. I, I really personally thought the interview was good. In my opinion, I, I felt like I got every point I made. And like, quite frankly, I don't, I don't got more to say than that. Like, I don't know what they want me to say. I, I've, I've, I feel like that's it. <laughs> like if you don't get it, you're choosing not to get it. If you're choosing to be obtuse. Those are the points. That is it. Those are the breaks. Break it up, break it up, break it up. So. As you can see, it's been it's been a weekend. Um, so other things that I did throughout the week um, before I went to Detroit and Delaware, um, I went to Kichi Omakase with my younger brother who loved it. It was his first ever Omakase, which for those who don't know, an Omakase is a very nice um, sushi place. Um, it's basically with the finest sushi. So it's basically in a, it's a Japanese restaurant. It's a meal consisting of dishes selected by the chef. So it could be a five course amakase. For us, I think it was like a 10 course amakase. But basically it's a meal consisting of dishes selected by the chef. So, um, this is a sushi. This was a sushi situation amakase. So it was all chef made. Um, uh, you know, for people who, you know, want to know. Now, in Izakaya is a type of Japanese bar in which there's a variety of small, typically inexpensive dishes and snacks are served to um, accommodate, uh, accompany the alcohol drinks. So, amakase is is basically a tasting, a chef's tasting. It could be for sushi, but it's in, Jap it's in Japan, right? So, it's a Japanese um, chef's tasting menu. Uh, izakaya is a Japanese bar. It's a type of Japanese bar that basically is just is translation happy hour, pretty much. <laughs> so that is different. Now, some people might want to know what is a yakitori. Yakitori is a is just basically bite sized small pieces of meat that's served on a bamboo skewer. Um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> people say, what's the difference between yakitori and izakaya? So just wanted y'all to know that y'all see these terms a lot, and you know. Thought it'd be fun to tell y'all. But we went to Amakasi um, in, in Midtown Village. It was Kichi. It's spelled K-I-C-H-I-K-I-C-H-I. Um, we did that. It was a great tasting. It was really swift. It was B-Y-O-B, by the way. It was B-Y-O-B, which was good. We, You know, I had wine, um, red wine for me. And he had bottled steel water. Um, cause they didn't have anything to drink. I don't think, I mean, I think they had Coca-Cola or Pepsi, but they didn't have any liquor. Like, did they have liquor? They kind of did, but it was like, but he can't drink it. He was, he's 20. So I'm trying to think what they had. They, they didn't really know. It's like, it's mostly B-Ball B. Like you could bring your own. They bring out wine glasses, flute glasses, all that stuff. 
Um, but it was good. It was it was it was great sushi. You all saw the photos on IG. Loved them down. They were fun. They were dope. Loved it a lot. Um, also, the risk it takes to bloom. That incredible book by my fave Raquel Willis. Um, I did a book talk with her at the Free Library of Philadelphia, the one on Vine, and it was beautiful. It was a great book talk. Raquel is a trans activist, writer. She used to be on the masthead for Out Magazine a couple years back. She's done a lot of great work in movement spaces. She's very outspoken. She's just full of life. And she just released her memoir, um, we and her are what we call label mates. We're both a part of St. Martin's Press. My book, The Case for Council Culture, which came out in February, is through St. Martin's Press. And of course, her book, The Risk It Takes to Bloom, as well. We have the same book publicist, and, and our book came from the same publishing imprint, which is super dope through Macmillan. So my label mate, um, she came, you know, she's on her book tour, and she made a stop in Philadelphia, and I had the pleasure of being in conversation with her. Um, the Risk It Takes the Bloom is out where books are sold. You can get it anywhere. Um, you can get it on Amazon, get it anywhere. It's a great, rich memoir. I mean, she goes in. And it's not, you know, one of the things I, I spoke a lot about during our discussion, um, during her book signing and everything, was that one thing that stood out to me about that book was that it's not, um, it's not a precious type of memoir. It's not the, oh my goodness, all my life I had to fight. It's just tragedy and trauma and tragedy and trauma and hurt and hurt and pain and pain. And that's it. She talks about difficult parts of her life, but it just moves and progresses to the, the blooming that she had in her life and the evolution of her family. And, and, and it, it, it just ends very much on a very high note and throughout it keeps a, a, a good balance of joy and and there was hardships but there's joy and she finds the joy and beauty throughout all these experiences and it's never just like always just a downer until the end and you know it's just, I just loved how that book was done and honestly if I ever do a memoir which probably y'all want me to do one soon but I'm look I'm, I mean she's around my age she's in her 30s I just I'm not ready I think there's more there's been more every every time People say, oh, you should do a memoir. I'm like, where? How? Because my shit keeps, stuff keeps happening. And I don't, I don't feel like, like, I just not, I'm not ready yet. I won't consider a memoir, honestly, y'all, until I'm 50. Like, I just personally don't see a memoir in me until I'm 50. They might convince me at 40, but honestly, I want to say 50. I won't consider writing a memoir until I'm 50 years old. I need, I, I personally, that's just me. I feel like there's just so many things I want to navigate and I want to experience before I get there. I just, there's just so many things that just needs to just, there's things that are fleshing out. There are things that I'm learning and I'm in discovery phase. And so I feel like when you're in that part of your life, you, you shouldn't want to encapsulate it so much. I mean, Raquel's experience is different. I think a memoir like hers makes sense for so many reasons that mine don't make sense, to be honest. Um, not yet, at least to be fair. Um, so yeah, I will, I will, I will, I will defer to fifty. Um, but who knows? It can change. But I'm I'm at round fifty now. I wouldn't mind doing a, a semi memoir, which would be like encapsulating one aspect of my life, where it would be. I know some people have done that lately, where they'll do like a book about their childhood or or something, but they wouldn't do their whole life memoir. Um, I could see myself doing that if there was a real desire. Like I could say, look, like honestly, I would love to do a memoir of my childhood and my college years. And then my adulthood years, I'm still evolving. Like 
like I would do something from my upbringing in college, my my upbringing, my youth, and then get to the end of my college senior year. I could see that ending. And that ending would be fun because it could be just kind of like this thing where I'm like, you know, at the end, you know, the guy who's my boyfriend years later, you know, a decade later, you know, that man became my husband. That would be a cool way to end it. I don't know. But I, I, I definitely could see something like that, but not not full adulthood life story yet. I feel like there's just consistently more. Like a year ago, I wasn't banned from NABJ. So I couldn't like, that would have been a major story that if I would have, there are people that were mentors and people I looked up to that betrayed me this year that in the shifting of all of that, they would have been, I would have sung their highest praises a year or two ago. So it's just, I got, I got to let some things flesh out. I feel like I'm, I'm in a groove now, but I feel like more things just needs to, I just need to live life more um, before I get there. But yeah, her book was incredible. Encourage you all to read it. Everyone should read it. Everyone should read it. Highly recommend it. Um, made a stop by Inswell um, over there. Inswell, it's E-N-S-W-E-L-L. Inswell um, over on Spruce, 15th around 15th and Spruce. Nice, nice bar. I always go. There's a co- they have like coffee focused locked uh cocktails, 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 and they all they use rival brothers, um, you know, cocktails. They also have like they have the best uh, you know, um espresso martinis. They have the best, like any type of coffee based cocktail, they got the best over there. Anything with coffee over there, any coffee, you know, based cocktail, they they they're great over there. Um, they they're just just divine. Um, Inswell, um, is just yeah, they're great. What well, one thing that stands out about them that I also like is that they are um, they use local um, they they're really good at using local liquor, like local brands. That's another thing that I appreciate about them a lot. They use a lot of local. All of their liquor is local spirits. They don't use any outside groups. So there's Blue Coat Gin in there. There's, um, you know, uh, Kinsey whiskey. Um, it's, it's all of those spirits, which means that they don't get certain types of liqueurs and they have to alternate it with different types of syrups they make in-house and things because everything there is local based liquor. Like every, every liqueur, every flavor, everything has to be based and sourced in Pennsylvania, um, which I love. They're very local grown. So I appreciate that element. So if you want to support local businesses, local distillers, things like that, go to Inswell for sure. That was it was a, it was a vibe for sure. Um, also had the pleasure of having dinner with Ellen Yen and A Kitchen. We had a cute little tour of AKA in Rittenhouse. And it was a group of myself and my bestie, Josh Eats Philly. We got together and a couple of friends. And we had a lovely dinner um, there at A Kitchen. And Ellen is great. Ellen Yen is the James Beard Award winning restaurateur who owns Fork, all of the high street properties, a kitchen, a bar, which is phenomenal. And just, yeah, like high street, high street bakery, high street provisions. Um, and of course, the legendary Fork. I mean, she's just, yeah, she's great. Won the James Beard Award for her restaurants. She was fabulous. Went to see a musical. Uh, you know, it's always every month. This your, your favorite gay socialite goes to a musical often to Kimmel, and I got to had the pleasure of seeing Company, the musical. Jamarcus and I went to go see it, 
and it was a great musical. Um, it was interesting. I had never knew any of the songs except for Ladies Who Lunch. Now, that was a song. But um, it was fun. It was different. It was hip. It was modern. It was great to watch a musical that was not based in like the super, super past. Like all the musicals I've I've watched lately, they're very into fantasy. They're very much so set in olden times or different worlds or fantasy worlds. But it was cool to watch a musical that was like set in modern day today. And it's and they had a black woman who played the lead role. And 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 she was phenomenal. Um she was great. Her her role was yeah, she can act her ass off. Um but I had a um I had a good time. I really enjoyed her um uh, performance um and thought that she was great. I, I felt like her performance was one is one of those performances where you're like, wow, why why wasn't a black uh person cast as this before? You know? Um sometimes you just don't know until you see it for yourself that some of these roles that we've been, you know, made to believe are for only, you know, white actors or actresses, other people could could play that role, um, you know, from our community and, and do it in a way that doesn't seem dis, disingenuous. And so this was one of those roles. So the character name is Bobby. Um, the, the role, the lead role is her. Her name is Bobby. And she's turning 35 and she's having, I don't know if I would call it a quarter life crisis, maybe a third life crisis, but basically she wants to talk about, she wants to consider marriage and everyone around her is like, you know, you should be married at this age. What's wrong with you? And she's navigating all of those obstacles and she's exploring love through her friends vicariously, their experiences with marriage and dating. And some of them are having great marriages. Some of them are not as happy. Some of them are doing experimental things. I don't want to tell off the show, but it's a really good play. And you can watch it. It's at the Forest Theater at the Kimmel and it's phenomenal. Um, but I enjoyed it. And she, that, who, the vocals, the vocals were vocaling. Let me just say that. The vocals were on point. Um, also got a chance to check out and revisit and circle around the block, as I always say, LMNO from Steven Star in Fishtown. It's great, y'all. I mean, it's good Mexican food. It's like, it's Baja, California. It's it's a mix of fusions. But like, I think about my girl Amanda and how she likes tacos. Girl, you got to go to LMNO. Like, honestly, LMNO feels like, and see, I'm going to make a comparison and I'm going to get in trouble, but it is what it is. It is, it is what... Distrito used to be at its height, except with more flair and liveliness. Like R.I.P. to Jose Garza's Distrito. I used to love Distrito growing up. Distrito used to be great, but Distrito went through so many different evolutions until its its, its unfortunate, untimely uh, demise. But this place reminds me of Distrito at its height, like when it was doing. Y'all remember? For those who remember, if you don't remember, it's okay. But listen. For those who remember Distrito in University City, when it first opened, there was a very clubby, lively vibe to it. But they had a good mix of serious, like, entrees that were really good, serious, full-course entrees. And they had the tapas and the tacos and the nachos, too. So you can mix and match your energy. Like, you can say, okay, if I want to go here, I want to have a really good, mature, fun Mexican meal um, and, and have it done really right, right? Elevate it. Or I could just go for a little happy hour. My friends and have the tacos and the nachos and be chill. 
Distrito ended up becoming playing into the interest of the University City crowd. So everything became happy hour food. Every they stopped doing the main courses. They stopped doing that because I guess the the college appetite was just different. And so they really fixated their food on really focusing on college students and their budgets, which was really weird to me because it's fucking Penn. It's a University of Pennsylvania. And them kids got some coins and some money. And clearly they're spending it at places like um What's the one they play? They, they give it to Pod, but I digress. So they changed it up, and then eventually Garza's just didn't keep it open. And Garza's is going through the, I mean, his restaurants, man, it's like some stay, some don't, some temporary closed. Hook and Master is temporary closed. Um, Tito is gone, which was one of my favorites. Um, Buena, Buena Ona, which was right next to Tinto and Whiskey Village, that's gone. But I think Whiskey, Whiskey Village is still open. But Tinto is gone. Buena Ona is gone right on that strip. They had that grand opening, grand closing. Now, there's still the Buena Ona over there, over there near Fairmount. And there is a Mata still. Both Amadas, well, three Amadas are open. One in Ratner, which is really good. Um, I had brunch there recently. That was really good. Then there's the Amada in Old City that is still legendary. And then there is one in Atlantic City, which is still going strong. But a lot of his places, I mean, Rovera is still open. And then he now has Garza's Trading Company, which is all in the Kimmel. But a lot of his restaurants, oh, he's got the old bar still. The old bar is still moving. But a lot of his restaurants... <laughs> They, 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 they're gone. They're gone. It's just the sad. And, and someone was talking to me the other day about restaurant closings that expect, they're saying a mass exodus of restaurants are about to close at the end of this year. Um, as you all know, uh, little, little, uh, little pop shop, little, little, little pop shop is closed. Recordly's is, is about to close in a couple of weeks. You know, the ones who make the great ice cream sandwiches. A lot of restaurants are about to close. It's about to get real, really fast. And see, a couple of episodes ago, I went on my tirade about how folks was acting real funny and stuffy about me talking about some showing up for these fucking restaurants. But damn it, let me tell y'all something. These restaurants aren't playing. This shit is getting real. And everybody will act funny and complain and all this. Okay. But your faves are shutting down. We're about to lose a lot of restaurants, I'm hearing. It's about to get real. There's a lot of new restaurants coming on the scene, but there's a lot of restaurants that's about to leave the scene. And we're about to see a major transition unlike anything we've seen in a while. Okay, I'm hearing and, and I'm hearing predictions of like pandemic closures. So you might want to check on your, your strong rate, your strong restaurant owner. They say check on the strong friend. I'm the strong friend often, and people check on me, but they often. Anyway, check on your strong restaurant owner because they, 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 they may not be. There might be some things going on, and you gotta show some love. Um, and I wrote that piece, and people got in their feelings. Want to talk about the economy? I should, shut up. If you're going to restaurants, pay your fare, pay tip, tip well, support. Or don't support. And there's other ways to support restaurants without going to them. Y'all know that, right? You know you can follow and share and promote and tell people about the restaurants. You can give them a nice review on Google because people do go on them Google reviews. I mean, them Yelp reviews are a mess. But you should really go 
and look at the reviews and add positivity or sparkle or support or showcase or shout out or recommend. You got companies out here throwing all these holiday parties. Are you supporting local businesses during the holidays? Like my holiday parties, all of my holiday parties are local venues supporting businesses and groups. Like we got to be more forward, period, period. Or if they close down, don't even complain. Just don't even complain. Just too many people out here trying to act like they protesters and shit to this. No, you're not. You're just cheap because you, you spend this money on Taylor Swift concert tickets as you can and should, but recognize what's happening here. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. So, um, other things, um, to consider, um, mm, let me see. Um, I went into, okay, I digress. LMNO is great because of the fact that <laughs> it it's fun, it's flavorful, it's lively, and it has a great balance between fun, familiar finger foods, but also some elevated type of cuisine. So I encourage people to Check it out and give it a try. It is Stephen Star. So if you have a Stephen Star gift card, they will accept it. Um, their happy hour is popping. Um, but the boys and I went there as a pregame for dinner before we went to see Renaissance, which I'll talk more about later in this show. So moving along, um, I wrote a piece for uh, Eater that has been sparking a lot of buzz. And I love writing the pieces that I know. I knew when I wrote this piece, it was going to take off. The moment I came up with this list, I knew it was going to take off. And it did. The most underrated restaurants in Philly. I haven't seen a list like this um, in Philly because I think people try not to. They get really subjective. Everybody always going to do the best restaurants. But I was like, I want to do the most underrated. And let me explain what I meant by underrated. Because... You know, during the, the you know, um, during the end of the year, right, around this time, there's a lot of great restaurants that often go ignored on these best of lists. You know, um, there are a lot of regional and national media outlets that put a spotlight on about the same like 20 or so places. Like there always is like this year, my Lou was on every list. Right. Honeysuckle Provisions, which I love, you know, um, other restaurants, you know, like Middle Child, um, you know, Clubhouse, you know, restaurants like that always get love. Her Supper Club, Zahav, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? They get love all the time. They're, they're getting a lot of love this year, as they should, right? But there are several dining spots that often fall within the cracks. There's a lot of reasons why, right? They don't get enough consistent PR. There's not a lot. They don't, some of them don't even have a PR team. They're just doing it themselves. Their launch was soft. They had this big, grand, you know, huge launch, um, the location is somewhere that doesn't often get enough buzz. So if you're not in an, a popping neighborhood like Fishtown or Redden House, you know, people may not even give a fuck. Just keep it 100. There's, they're not a part of a popular restaurant group. So they're not part of Garza's or Stephen Starr or, you know, uh, Solomov and Cook, you know, that, that has a place. Or they're being outshined by a bigger named restaurant that serves similar cuisine. So, you know, there's some great Middle Eastern restaurants, but if it's not Zahav or Laser Wolf, people may not even give it a look because they're only going to go for those two, right? But we've celebrated restaurants all the time that are great, but we need to look at these other ones that are doing good too. So I did my list 
of the first ever 15 most most underrated restaurants in Philly. And to be clear, underrated in my definition is a restaurant that is not on any major essential restaurant lists. Um, They're not on any best of list, any, um, yeah, they're not on those lists. They're literally like, you know, they might be on lists in general, like, oh, places to eat in Chicago, or not Chicago, uh, in Fishtown. But I'm saying they're not given any of this major prestige in that way. So these are my restaurants. Toast Cafe, which I love in West Philly. It's on, on 500 South 52nd Street. They got the best oxtail and grits I've ever had in my life. Stir Restaurant, which is on 2600 Benjamin Franklin Parkway. That's in the Art Museum in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They are there. It, it, even though it's a museum a restaurant, it is not just a basic museum restaurant. It is really good up in there. Stir is really underrated. And you do not have to, I don't believe you have to have a, an, a have to buy a museum ticket in order to go, I believe. Butcher Bar, which is on 20, 20th and Chestnut, um, it's in Center City. And there's a lot of great steakhouses, but this place is just serving anything with meat and it's serving it well. I mean, juicy burgers, fire grilled chicken, succulent ribs, it's killing it. Wilder and Ridden House, which a lot of people sleep on, but they have a really good, consistent dinner, lunch, and brunch menu. I mean, they got pasta, they got seafood, they got um, a really great pizza line, they got other um, entrees, but they got a good situation going. They have a really great raw bar that's really extensive. Um, Underrated. It's on 20th and Sansom. There's Southgate, which I love. It's Korean. And they have a really great happy hour, but their food is so good. They're on 18th and Lombard Street. They have like, oh, they have bile buns. They got, um, you know, spicy pork ramen. Oh, so good. Everything in there is just chef's kiss. Pizzeria Salvi, um, which a lot of people were shocked they had this on the list. There, this is a really great pizza spot. A lot of people talk about Pizzeria Badia, which is phenomenal, and other places, but we don't talk about Pizzeria Salvi enough. Now, this is Chef Mark Vetri's restaurant. Now, you're like, Vetri? Vetri's legendary. Yes, but Pizza Salvi is inside the Comcast Technology Center, which is at the bottom. It's not the, when you walk in the Comcast Technology Center, which is on 1800 Art Street, you don't see the surface. You have to go take the um, escalator down, and it's underground. And it is its own space, and it's named after his father, Sal. Um, um, Mark Vetri's father just recently passed away during the Thanksgiving holiday. And this restaurant is named after his father, Sal, who was an inspirational chef, really influenced his son's cooking, and really is just legendary. Um, Great menu, great meatballs, great salads. This is a really great piece of spot that I feel like is underrated. People should go there. Speaking of Italian, Dose Italian, which I went to this week, um, this past week, and also I've been to a couple other times prior, but they have some really good food. They're in the the W Hotel. Dose, you see it all the time. Or Dolce, I think it's called Dolce. I've been saying Dose. Oops. Dolce, 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 Dolce. Like Versace. You know, it's not Versace. It's Versace. So it's Dolce. I believe it is Dolce. Um, it is in... <laughs> Um, the W Hotel, and they make impressive house-made pasta. They have really great pizza, um, but they also have some really great entrees. Like I had the lamb oso buco, and that was really good. And they have a truffled Spanish ricotta ravioli that's divine as well. 
Um, and they're at the W, which is on uh, 14, uh, 1437 Chestnut Street. Also went to Winkle. Winkle is another one. It's in Midtown Village, the neighborhood. Very fun place. It's gay owned, I believe, as well. They don't take reservations, but that brunch is nothing to play with. They have a deep fried bread pudding French toast. They got a brisket hash. They got omelets. They got all kinds of things over there. It's at 11th and Locust, and it's called Winkle. There's also Oloroso, which I'm in love with. They serve tapas. And there's a lot of places that do tapas in Philly, y'all. Like a lot of tapas spot. But this place got a Spanish tapas situation. They got steak empanadas and scallop brochettes and ham and cheese croquettes and chicken tagine and all the great stuff over there. Great, great spot. Highly recommended. It's also in Midtown Village as well. It's at 1121 Walnut Street. Oloroso. Don't sleep on it. There's also Grace and Proper, which is in South Philly. It's an Italian market. And they are Portuguese-influenced. I went there when they first opened. I need to make some more visits back. But I, I sleep on them. But they have some really great stuff. They got a really good savory garlic, slow-roasted pork loin sandwich. They got a Euro bar that has all these great spritz and Greek rosés and cocktails. It's really good in there. It's sophisticated, but it's casual. It's a very popular bar. But none of praise. Now, y'all know I love my vegan spots. Oh, also, for those who want to know, Grace and Proper is on 941 South 8th Street. So it's deep in South Philly. Now, for my vegan restaurant, because I love, you know, I, you know, I got to show love to my vegans. Fits on 4th. If you've ever been, you know this is the spot. Everyone goes to Veg and everybody go to Charlie was a sinner. But Fits on 4th is where it's at. I went there and really loved it. They really take their plant-based cuisine seriously they really do they have some really great food i had a whole bill there me and mr johnson went there for dinner a couple of months back and y'all i think people sleep on them but they have i mean when i everything they had in there was just so good meatless and dairyless but everything tastes like them they have meatballs quote-unquote meatballs that's made with pea protein and chickpeas and chickpeas i mean they got um all types of eggplant. They got their own, you know, uh, surfing, it's not surfing turf. It, it's a, it's like an octopus, vegan octopus dish that tastes like octopus, but isn't, it's wild. The food is so damn good. Also, another favorite of mine is Southwark, which is really good. Southwark, y'all sleep on because they're, now, where is Fitz on 4th? It's on 743 South 4th Street. That's in Queen Village for people who, who know that area. It's in Queen Village, Fitz on 4th is. But Southwark is in Queen Village as well. It's at 701 South 4th Street. And the reason why I'd say people sleep on um, Southwark is that it's it's connected to Ambra. And if y'all remember a couple of weeks ago, I went to Ambra with Mr. Johnson. We had a lovely dinner. It was so romantic. It was so good. Um, but the owner, Chris D'Ambro, and his um, wife, Marina Marina D. um, they own th- both of those restaurants that are connected together. Everyone talks about Ambra. Ambra gets on all the lists, okay? Ambra gets on all the best of lists. So that's why I cannot say that it's underrated. It's it's highly great. I mean, it's on the Essentials restaurant list for Eater. Like, it's a great restaurant. But people sleep on Southwork, which is connected to it. And that place is so underrated. They have all types of dishes. They got cheddar stuffed hush puppies, a 26 ounce bone-in ribeye. They got some really great cocktails. They got a cocktail in there called Mariah Carey Can't Dance. Um... 
which is <laughs> true and funny, but also the cocktail is really good. Um, but it's great. It's great over there. They do some really good food. Um, the Twisted Tale, which y'all heard me preach about a couple of, what, what last week is when I went there for the ribs and fried chicken. It's on 509 South 2nd Street. It's on, it's in South Philly. Don't sleep on the Twisted Tale. Don't play with the Twisted Tale. It's great. It's got one of the best whiskey bars in the region. And they just really have some really great food. Not just bar food, but just great food. Postiano Coast by Aldo Lamberti. Lamberti. Um, it is in Old City. Some people call it Society Hill, but it's on uh, 212 Walnut Street. It's got it's on the second floor. Got that beautiful rooftop. They got one of the best outdoor eating alfresco dining spaces around. It's Mediterranean food. It's great for large parties. You got some great dinner parties there, birthdays. It's really ideal for all those special occasions. They got a really great happy hour too. The calamari is just like one of the best calamaris in the city. Um, but that really great seafood. It's Greek. It's fun. It's festive. It's pretty. It's underrated. And then last but not least, I've been in love with this place for a while and I keep, I can't stop singing its praises. It's in Northern Liberties. It is also an Armenian, it's a, it's a Mediterranean grill with Arm, Armenian flavor. It's apricot stone. It's that BYOB that I cannot stop praising. They got that crazy dinner for two tasting menu that's only $85, not per person, for the couple. And it's BYOB. Y'all, you can't beat that. You can't beat that. It's the perfect date night spot. People sleep on it, but, you know, it's it's fabulous. Those are my 15 underrated restaurants. And some of y'all are probably going to listen to this and be pissed because you're going to say, God damn, you done let them on cheat code. Restaurants need our support, especially our underrated restaurants. They need our support. Our underrated restaurants need our support. We cannot keep playing them. We got to support our underrated restaurants because honestly, you know, they could close and we're going to all be mad when they if they do. So I, I, one of the things I love about this position is that these restaurant owners call me and they say to me, you know, Ernest, thank you so much for the shout out. Because when I started seeing a spike in my open table reservations, my resi reservations, I was like, where did this come from? When people come to the restaurant, they tell me that there are folks that specifically pull out my articles on their phone and say, oh, I heard about it here. It makes a difference. And, you know, there's people that are snobs in this business that get mad because they feel like, only a certain type of restaurant should be shouted out. But you just don't have good taste. See, I grew up in Chicago and Houston, and now I live in Philly. I've been to different restaurant cities, major restaurant cities. I grew up in, in the scene, per se. What I will tell you is, and anybody who's a real one knows, that good food can be found at all levels of the restaurant scene. Whether you're talking lowbrow, highbrow, midbrow, whatever. There are bad restaurants that cost $100 per meal. And there are some phenomenal restaurants that cost only $10 for a plate. I have ate at all the ranges. And all of these restaurants are worthy of um, recognition. And when I hear small business owners, you know, tell me things about like how people read the article or there's somebody shot it out or they can see the uptick in reservations because somebody in their neighborhood who never gave it a look did not know. That's that feels good because then you don't know, right? A couple of people go to that restaurant. You can create a generation of folks going like the craziest thing is I just realized my brother 
literally goes out to restaurants with his girlfriend based off of what I what list I do. And I didn't even realize this until we talked for dinner. Like, I just didn't even realize. It's like, of course, my influence. Like, one of his favorite places he loves, he loves barbecue, is Fatsu Saw, which is that Stephen Star restaurant in Fishtown. He loves that place. And he saw about it on a list I did. He was just like, oh, yeah. And a lot of times he just orders off of Uber, uh, eats, but he tries restaurants based off of the stuff I put. And so his girlfriend and him celebrate their one-year anniversary, which is a big deal in college years, I'm going to say. They celebrate their one-year anniversary at Georgia on Pine. And I was just like, that was one of the first restaurants, Mr. Johnson, I went to on our day in college. And like, now he's doing it. A generation, a generation of just, you know. But Georgia on Pine stays open over 10 years later, still years, decades. They still doing it. And, and now... My younger brother in college is going, you know, but that's because of word of mouth. That's because people share Instagram posts and people write reviews on Google. And because we support these restaurants, we can keep a great restaurant that does not have to be on a New York Times list, which that list was trash, by the way. Um, They don't have to be on the list like that in order to thrive. Success means something different for restaurant owners. That you could get all the awards and the claim, you could be gone. You better ask Kevin Sabraga. Okay, love him. RIP to his restaurants, but he's a great guy. But Kevin Sabraga had restaurants that was getting high praise. Juniper Commons, not so much. But the Fat Ham and, and Sabraga, the restaurant that was on um, on Broad, tons of praise, tons of love. But those restaurants collapsed. So sometimes we, we have to be thoughtful about how we, we, we talk about and position restaurants. It's not just about, you know... Being overrated or underrated, sometimes it's about the simple stuff. Just saying. Now, before we get to hot topics, I'm going to address the ear in the room. So, I got a little graphic, but y'all liked it, though. All the likes and the virality of that post, and y'all know what I'm talking about. It's about the earwax. So, let me tell y'all this story. I mean, I gave y'all a little bit, but y'all was asking more questions, and I wanted to save it for the podcast. So, let me explain how this all went down. For the past couple of like months, I want to say the past three or four months, I noticed that I was turning up the volume on the TV. We have a big screen TV at the house. And Mr. Johnson just, you know, he he's a subtitles guy, which I I hate subtitles. I'm no, well, let me clarify. Let me get that together. If you have to use subtitles, by all means, use them. And I have no problem with the with various communities of people who use subtitles. Personally, I, I, you know, for my own personal usage, I don't need subtitles. And so therefore I don't use them because, you know, a lot of times you the subtitles can cover up things on the screen, or at least the subtitles on my TV, the way they're placed, they cover up faces and things. I don't know if you can, if there's a way on the TV that you can move subtitles where at the bottom rather than the top. I don't know. But the way that the subtitles run on my TV, they cover up people's faces. And so sometimes I look at Mr. John's like, why are you, you, anyway, but he likes to use them. Um, I, I, you know, was like, mm, I like to hear, I like to so I would turn the volume up and I found myself turning up and he would just be like, oh my God, this is so loud. I'm just like, what you talking about? This is decent. You're just lazy. I don't know. So then I noticed too, I was doing the same thing with my music. Now, see, this is sound like the sound of metal. Have you ever seen that movie with Riz Ahmad? He won an Oscar, got an Oscar nomination. 
Uh, it's called The Sound of Metal. It was it came out a couple years ago. This man who went deaf. But I was feeling like that. Like, like something was going on. Um, and it wasn't that I couldn't hear anymore. I just felt like my hearing was just not... It just it was just, I don't know. I just started having moments. And I saw this movie, The The Sound of Metal. Again, it's a very great film. Oscar nominated, highly recommended. But I started feeling like, is this happening to me? Like, what's going on? Is it all the years of, I don't know, audio listening, earphones? I don't know. But I was like, this, you know, what's going on? I was getting a little scared. So I said, okay, I need to face my fears and stop playing. I need to go to, you know, get my health checkup and everything. So I was there. I was like, you know, prepared and I wanted to go in private. I just was, I just wanted my time. So I go there to my personal um, primary care practitioner and she looks in my ears. She checks me out. We do the other checkups and everything. And she uh, checks my ears and she goes, you got a lot of wax in here. And I said, oh, I do? She's like, yeah, you got a, you got a lot. And it was not like a lot. Like it was coming on, growing on my ear. Like, come on, like y'all know I would have got that taken care of. But she had looked inside and saw there was a lot of buildup. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? She says, I need to do a flushing procedure. I'm going to bring in one of my people. She brought in somebody. I think it was an EMT. I don't know that detail, but this was a simple situation. So she brought in this woman, black woman, wonderful practitioner. She comes in. She's like, look, we're going to do a process where we're just going to do a little flush, a ear flush situation. I said, can you describe this? It's non-surgical. It's not really painful. Basically, it was a procedure where they have this little tool they put in the ear and it's like water. And they just like basically rinse the ear out like repeatedly with the pressure to basically get out wax residue. So I'm thinking, why are they doing all this for a little bit of wax? I don't know what's happening. So they first off, with uh, they don't use a cotton uh, a, a Q-tip. They use this other device, like a little scooper thingy, and they put it deep in the air and they begin to scoop out the wax that they can see up front. It didn't hurt. It felt like a Q-tip, except not the cottoniness. But it didn't hurt. This was very like painless. But they get as much they can get out. And then they put in this device and they put in a little bowl, like a little bowl that connects the ear. You tilt your head and they, I had my head tilted to the eardrum and they're going in there doing this little rinse thingy and it feels soothing. It kind of feels very soothing. But I keep leaning my head down as I'm leaning my head down, the water's coming out. And then something falls out of it and she's like, oh, it comes out. And I'm like, while it's coming out, I feel like the sensation of a brand new ear. Like, I don't know how to describe it, but like the it was like a hole. Like I could hear a gape, like a gaping hole come through my ears. Like it was almost like my hearing returned or something magical happened. Like I felt like, I don't know, what's that girl in the miracle worker? Like Helen Keller. I don't know, but it was like almost like all of a sudden the ears just, just was doing its thing. And as that happens, I look into the bowl and there was this big fucking ass pebble shaped thing. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? And she's like, oh, that was all the earwax. I was like, you're kidding me. She says, no, it came out. I said, it was an earwax nugget in my ear. So she does the second ear and the same thing happens. Yo, my ears have not felt the same since. Y'all, I, listen, I'm going to tell you how radical this is. And even my friends have noticed this. 
I'll, I'll tell you some things. Even my mom noticed it because my mom went to Rachel's wedding. And let me sidebar this. I, I barely leave. My mother was having the time of her goddamn life over there at that damn wedding. A little too much fun. And y'all saw the IG stories. If you didn't see the IG stories, it's okay. My mother was having a good old time. A good old fashioned time. She was the life of the party. Mm. But <laughs> I digress. She's noticed this. But let me, let me start by saying they came out. The picture I showed you all was the picture of the earwax nuggets, both of them. One came out of each earpiece. What I was told was that I've never done this to my ear before, the ear flushing. I never had it in my entire life. What I, what she said to me was that was literally decades of built up wax that wasn't addressed. The last time I got my ears done and checked and cleaned in a way was probably when I was seven. We're looking at about 25 years. That was 25 years of earwax, Philly gossip, political tea, and everything else in between in that wax. 25 years, okay? Built up, came out. Listening to this podcast right now, y'all. How many of y'all have ever got your ears flushed in the way that it should? How many of y'all have been using Q-tips and pushing the shit down and not realize it? How many of y'all have been doing this? Now, I'm not a doctor and I'm not giving you any recommendations or anything. All I'm asking you is to ask yourself those questions. And all I'm telling you is that if you are feeling similar ways that I feel, Go to a professional. Go to your primary healthcare doctor. Go to an EMT if that's what works for you. But go get your ears checked out. Don't sleep on it. Don't think the worst. Don't don't use just run the subtitles or just don't don't sleep on it. It could be something deeper. It could be something simple. I thought I was going deaf. No, I just had fucking earwax in my ears for so many goddamn years. So I had to do what I had to do. And it was so inexpensive. I didn't, I mean, it was just regular copay, whatever. It was easy. It was breezy. It was, it was nothing that deep, except I need to do it. So here's what I'm going to tell um, y'all what happened after that. The ears changed. When I put my earphones back on, I realized the volume was super loud. That's how much it was a difference. I can hear my voice. I can hear the inflection of my voice in a way that I never could before. Uh, when I got home and turned the TV on, it was too loud. I said, wow, what a difference. And my friend said to me, this is something my friends also told me, that when I talk, they say they notice that I don't, I don't, I sound more reserved or quieter. Like my voice isn't so loud. I feel like I was talking louder because I wanted to hear myself. And so when you don't hear, you're talking louder. They said, I talk much calmer now. And I was like, huh? They just said that I, I sound very much my voice or when I talk, it seems softer. It's not as loud as it used to be. But I think that was because I didn't, you know, but it, it was a real change. And so maybe people who interact with me in person, because I don't know what the volume is set on the podcast, so you might not notice it here at all. But if you talk to me in person, if you notice I sound quieter, it's probably because I can now hear myself and now I don't have to talk, sound like Meek Mill. Because Meek Mill will just be yelling. Maybe Meek Mill has like wax in those ears, which is why he's yelling as much as he do. But I say all this to say, shout out to just people in medicine. What a, what a job. What a job. All right. On to the news. The news. The news news. There are some things we noticed. George Santos is officially expelled. I repeat, George Santos is officially expelled. Hallelujah. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. It's a long time coming. I'm so happy he's going. I'm so tired of him. 
George Santos has been an annoyance for a minute. And we've been sleeping on George Santos and not paying him any mind. But George Santos has been a problem and he's officially expelled. This is a big deal. A lot of people um, have been talking about this for some time. Um, I, I, for one, have noticed a lot of interesting things as well. Um, but George Santos is going through it. He is definitely going through it. There's been a lot of tea about his experience and what has happened. Um, so let, let, let me explain the nature of this. Um, lawmakers had overwhelmingly expelled him. Um, it was not unanimous though, which is very telling. Um, this man lied, said he was a volleyball star. He had degrees from Walsh College in New York University, and he was a Golden Sachs alum. None of that was true. Uh, it was a lot of lies. There was a vote of 311 to um, 114. 311 said yay. 114 said nay. 206 Democrats and 105 Republicans voted against the expulsion. Two Democrats and 112 Republicans voted against it. This is the sixth time in U.S. history that the House expelled one of its own and the first time the House has done so without a criminal conviction. Okay? That's a first. This is the first time that a member in U.S. history was expelled from Congress without a criminal conviction. The other five had criminal convictions. So let's be clear. They did something, and so therefore they had to go. But this is the person who just straight up got expelled, and he's also gay. Isn't that interesting? That ain't the representation we want, okay? That is not the representation that we want. But I try to let people be great. I try to let people be great. Um, you know, which... Mm, mm, mm. So I, I, it's a lot of stuff that, um, that mm, so many things, so many things about that. Just oh. so he left the chamber before the vote had closed. Um, when he realized there was about three hundred votes against him, which confirmed his removal. Um, Speaker Mike Johnson had basically, um, you know, banged the gavel, and the chamber felt fell very silent. Um, people had seemed stunned that that he was actually expelled, um, even though people people were shocked that it really happened that he was expelled. Um, but it was real. And remember, this is a man who is still in trouble. He, you know, he disputes that he broke the law, but there are twenty three criminal counts against him, and there's a lot of substantial evidence that his indictment, as well as his ethics report released two years ago. Detailed even more a number of alleged violations, legal violations. I mean, it's a lot here. Um, there were some people who stood beside him, um, like Clay Higgins from New Orleans. I'm not New Orleans, I'm from Louisiana. Um, there was other people like, um, uh, you know, folks that um, defended him. And, you know, I just am like, I don't know. I, I, you know, with Lauren Bohart supported him. Um, you know, somebody said I was not elected, nor any of us to defend president. I was elected to defend the U.S. Constitution. Okay. Sure. Just a lot of people. But, you know, honestly, y'all, we've been covering him on Earnestly Speaking for a minute. 
And quite frankly, I'm happy that there is, you know, crime and punishment. Everybody want to talk about law. Conservatives love talking about law and order. But then when it's time to slap down the law and enforce the order, they get all of a sudden scared. I don't get them. I think they're like the thugs of politics. Like they talk all they talk about police and arrest and law and order and respect and authority. And they're the main ones who violate it. Just the, the hypocrisy for me. But moving on, there was an interesting debate that took place um, earlier, earlier this week. Um, there was a debate that took place, which a lot of people probably not watched. It was on Fox News. It was interesting, though. Um, Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis had a debate on Fox News. Now, to your thoughts, I was like, is this the presidential debate? No, it's not. It was just this interesting. It was very unorthodox, as people described. But it was a I mean, it was about it was basically the, the West Coast versus the South. Florida versus, they're both governors. So Gavin is Newsom is the governor of California, which is very liberal and arguably progressive. And then, of course, Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida. So they both had a debate in Alpharetta, Georgia, um, which is interesting. Um, it's a culture war, but, you know, it was it was interesting. Um, so some of the things that I noticed from the debate and also other outlets like the Washington Post and others have reported was that, um, you know, Hannity apparently stacked the deck, apparently, and Newsom goes on defense. And so, you know, he talked about California's higher tax rates and crime rates. And the governor, um, you know, talked about, you know, basically had said, you know, Newsom, you know, basically sidestepped the question about the population losses. And Hannity called him out for it. Um, DeSantis claimed that the people are, people are leaving California in droves because he has failed to stand up for public safety, which is interesting. Newsom then got um, Ron DeSantis together and said, you're nothing but a bully. Intimidating and humiliating people, that's your calling. Ooh, the shade was thrown. Um, there was also a criticism for San Francisco um, taking a beating as a template for, dem for Democrats America. Um, you know, DeSantis you know, said that San Francisco's former mayor turned that into a template from California's collapse. You know, he says, now the left wants to take the California model and use that as a template for America's collapse. And Newsom shot back by saying, don't insult a great American city. They both took shots at each other. Uh, abortion definitely is a political problem for Ron DeSantis, and that became very clear. It's always been clear. The Republicans are going to struggle over abortion. I feel like if anything is a saving grace and what we've seen in the midterm election, what we've seen consistently in these races, that abortion is something that all that both parties of the members of both parties want. The white women in the suburbs, you know, they support a woman's right to choose. They might not support <laughs> a lot of other choices, but for whatever reasons, abortion is not sticking with conservatives. Conservatives should have left that alone. A Pew Research study had said in the spring that they found that six in 10 Americans say abortion should be legal in all or more, more cases, while more than a third said it should be illegal in all or most cases. So it's obvious that the majority of Americans want abortion to be legal. And so I don't know. Now, people talked about Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, it's interesting because Gavin Newsom also made it clear. And he said that the two of them had something in common, that basically they will not be the next president of the United States, which was meant to show to everybody that 
that I'm sorry, Gavin Newsom said that the governor Gavin said that from California, which confirmed what we was trying to figure out. Newsom basically confirmed that he's not running for president in 2024, that Biden is not going to get a challenger, that Biden, the Democrats are going to unify behind Biden at all costs. They're sticking beside him regardless. Some of y'all listening to this podcast are going to probably do a heavy sigh like, but it seems like, you know, Newsom is just not doing it. He's just not going to do it. Um, And people thought he, he was a good alternative, but he's not going to do it. People say, well, DeSantis get a boost. Um, I mean, he seemed to be more, he stood out more compared to his appearance on the, the presidential primary debates. Um, people say he, it's been hard for him to get any time to speak. He hasn't gotten any traction from the folks. Um, they agree on the issues. He hasn't stood out. Um, but Thursday, it was obvious that he had, he was, that Newsom was a clear ideological foe. Uh, to himself. There are like opposites on end. And, you know, maybe that helps Ron DeSantis stand out, especially because he's on Fox News, right? Because right now, everybody seems to be feeling Nikki Haley. You know, she's the former UN ambassador. She's, you know, his rival. He's picking up steam. But let's be very clear, y'all. Trump remains the clear front runner for the Republican nomination. It's just does not seem to be any indication that any of them are going to. It seems like Trump is going to pull off the nomination when it gets to that point. But Nikki Haley's putting up a run for the money. And Ron DeSantis, you know, I mean, this was a good look for him, I guess. But I don't know. I don't think, I don't know. Uh, Maybe. Who knows? We'll see. I don't think he's going to get it, though. Um, Henry Kissinger is dead. Moving along, Sandra Day O'Connor, the former Supreme Court Justice, um, who retired. She died at 93. What an unfortunate death. Um, legendary. But she lived a long life. 93 years is a long life. She was one of the more favorable, one of the most beloved women on the Supreme Court. I mean, she was able to get bipartisan support and interest in her. She's one of the few women who was in that seat. Um, and she's made history. Um she lived a long life, you know, she lived a long life. She is, she was the first woman to serve as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Um, she was a moderate conservative and, you know, she was known for her opinions, research opinions. Um, she was born in 1930, um, March 26, 1930. Um, and yeah, she lived a long life. Um, she was on the Supreme Court from 1981 to 2006. So that was a good piece of time. She was there for 25 years. You know, meanwhile, Clarence Thomas has served for over 30. He's about, well, he's over 30 years in the Supreme Court. Just saying. Mm. Now, the scandal that we've all been waiting for. The royal races. We found out who they were. They've been exposed. It's knocking and bucking in Buckingham Palace. The, the royal races have been exposed, apparently. Apparently. Allegedly. Um, I can't say this is for fact. This is just a tea. Um, but it's causing alleged divide. Um, questions of royal racism has been reignited. Some high-profile names in this book. So there is an author. His name is Omid Scobie. Um... 
who is a journalist and author, he said he's looking forward to finding out how the names ended up in the Dutch version of Endgame. So this book Endgame came out, his book Endgame. Um, and basically, it's a lot of tea. Um, the Dutch version of the book Endgame discussed Prince Archie's skin color. Now, the, the book claims that the, said the alleged allegation, this was in reference to the claims that was made by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle during their interview with Oprah in 2021, right? Now, at the time, Charles held the title of Prince of Wales and Catherine, formerly Kate Middleton, was the Duchess of Cambridge. Now, Meghan told Oprah, as y'all know, that leading up to Archie's birth, members of the royal family had expressed, quote, concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he is born. Now, she never told the name, but people always called them the royal racists. Now, in this new book, Endgame, okay, there were people who finally exposed who those people are. There's been a lot of drama around this book, the transition, the translation. There was a lot. Now, following over the book, the, the Dutch version, which is titled, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Dutch version. It was temporarily recalled for what the what publisher Xander said was an error in the translation. A rectified edition will be back in bookstores on December 8th. That's what's being claimed. Okay. But it's caused problems because now the speculation is that the king and princess of Wales as royal figures as center of royal racism. The Radio 4 Today program announced the names just an hour after saying the corporation would not be disclosing them, but they did. So now they're saying the current King of England, okay, which is King Charles III, you know, that's the one that, you know, cheated on Princess Diana, Princess Diana's ex-husband, you know, and the Princess of Wales, which is Kate Middleton, that's the one who's married to, um, um, not Prince Harry, uh, Prince William, Prince William's wife, Kate Middleton, who had the royal wedding. They're saying that it's a book, everybody's saying it's a book publishing mistake, but apparently sources say that a lot of people are over them. Now, my good friend, and I put friend in parentheses, Pierce Morgan identified two royals linked to Meghan Markle's um, accusation. Now, Pierce, if you want to bring me on the show to talk the tea, I will. But the headlines are saying that Pierce Morgan is risking a lawsuit by naming um, royal racists. He went on air. He identified them and that he said, basically, these are two scenes. And he said that they was included in that book. Now, the move is risked sparking a potential privacy lawsuit from either Buckingham Palace or Meghan's legal team, as she also has the right to privacy attached to a letter she sent to King Charles III that may have contained one or both names. There is a lawyer who said privacy doesn't just belong to the palace. It belongs separately and severely to Meghan and Harry. This book has caused a lot of controversy. Um, we'll see. Pierce Morgan decided to take what he characterized as the, as a stand for free speech by naming them. He told the viewers, I'm going to cut through all the crap, all this crap. I'm going to tell you the names of the two senior royals who are named in the Dutch version of that book. Because frankly, if Dutch people wandering into a bookshop can pick it up and see these names, then you British people here who actually pay for the British royal family, you're entitled to know 
two, and then we can have a more open debate about this whole Fargo. Because I don't believe any racist comments were ever made by any of the royal family, and until there is actual evidence of those comments being made, I will never believe it. But now we can start the process of finding out if they ever got uttered, what the context was, and whether there was any racial intent at all. Like I say, I don't believe there was. The royals who were named in the book are... He then named two royal family members who have been included in the Dutch version, which has been pulled from sale. It is not clear whether the names in that translation are accurate or not. It's interesting because a lot of people are speculating this. And honestly, apparently people don't want to name them, but it's being alleged. These are being, they're being alleged. No one's saying they are but it's starting to look a little, starting to look a little, a little interesting. You know, who the people are, what it is. People are like not saying it, whatever. But this is what's happening. And a lot of people are not, I guess, naming who the people are alleged. But he named them. It's out there. It's alleged. And... Apparently, um, Buckingham Palace has declined to comment, according to New York Times. But there's been a lot of speculation out there. I'm just going to say allegedly. Um, now to Philly. Their Philly's mask ban is officially happening. This mask ban that's been in conversation for a while, it is happening, people. It's happening. So, council member um, Anthony Phillips, who I know personally and you know, politically, he has enforced this this ski mask ban, which I've talked about ad nauseum a couple of months ago when it was first being introduced. Um, it's been interesting to see um, all of this go down, but here we are. So this ski mask ban is basically an attempt to ban the poo mask, the, the shiesty poo masks. This has been a trend by a rapper, you know, who's now incarcerated, actually. Um, that facial mask, those ski masks that look like people robbing. Some of the masks look like masks like a robber would wear. Some of them are just ski masks that just cover the face and the head and everything else. A lot of controversy has been about these masks because people think that it's connected to high crime, quality of life concerns and issues. I've wrestled with this, and I think after hearing the speeches, the rhetoric, and everything in between, it passed 13 to 12. So 13 members of city council voted yes. There were two nays. The two nays came from um, Kendra Brooks and Jamie Gautier. Those were the two, two black women that did not support it. Um, the other 13 did. So, you know, there were speeches given and some people just didn't need to give a speech. To be quite honest, I don't know why Isaiah Thomas felt the need to give a long speech. All he was doing was co-sign what Anthony Phillips said. Sometimes I get annoyed with, con with, with not Congress, but City Council, where people give these long speeches and try to explain their positions. And they, they, they whine about how tough the vote was, but they did it anyway. What you're going to do, what you're going to do, just stand by it. And stop giving all that tiptoe handy. Because, you know, the problem is with elected officials, certain ones, is that when people say that they don't know where you stand or you seem like you're wavering, it's because of those types of 
side it. If you support it, support it. And giving these, you know, half-baited responses, I mean, at the end of the day, it is about respectability politics. That policy to me is more about respectability politics than actually solving the damn thing. What I don't like about this policy is that for all the hypothetical, like even, even you know, um, Kenyatta Johnson, which is, yeah, they were telling me, you know, my boys in the block, they tell me it's the mask, it's the mask. You know, he always does his, you know, his South Philly grunted accent, you know. You know, my whole thing with all of it, even Anthony Phillips who gave like this, I want to say 10 minute, I have a dream of no ski mask speech which was just hilarious. And what was sad is that he gives this long, passionate speech, but he only gets a couple of claps. And I felt bad because I know long speeches at city council. I remember when councilwoman at large, uh, Catherine Gamer Richardson gave a speech about the leveling of the public school district. What a passionate speech that then led to many people standing up and clapping and filling her. But Anthony Phillips gave this speech and it was long as hell and he was full of all this passion and like, only got full of claps, which goes to show you that what annoys me the most at city council, this reminds me of the Hamas legislation that came out by, that was proposed by um, Kenyatta Johnson, that, and even this one with the ski mask, that they get all these people riled up to come to city council, all this theory, this debate over shit that's not going to make a material difference. I don't think this, I think the bill is stupid. I, I was struggling at first about it, but I think I'm convinced that it's stupid. And I'm going to tell you why I think it's a stupid bill and why I think it was just no point of having it. I'm going to tell you why. First of all, there was no empirical data that supported any of this. This is a bunch of fucking people that are fear-mongering off of it. I, policy must be back with data. And Isaiah Thomas should know better. A lot of them should know better, right? That when he did driving equality, he had research to back up his shit. There's no research. And let me tell you what I mean by research. Research in the fact that, okay, for starters, right, can you tell me the number of crimes that were committed where ski masks were involved? Can you tell me the causation correlation between the ski mask wearing and the propensity of crime? Are you noticing that the majority of criminals that are doing what they're doing are wearing ski masks? There have been incidents where people have worn a ski mask, but there's also been incidents where people have worn a hoodie. There's also been incidents that people wore J's on their feet when they did a shooting. Like, I just need for us to be clear about the causation of correlation. The second thing is that there has been no research that have shown that the, the, the ski mask situation has been a propensity for crime. Like, there's just no data. There's no research. They have not done the research. We don't have any. There's just this, like, common sense mindset of, like, well, if you do this, you do this. So that's the one thing that don't sit well with me. Second of all, the ACLU is going to slap a fat-ass lawsuit and sue them. And I would love for them to. I, will, I can't wait for the ACLU to sue the city for this. Because... This is a violation of, of, of civil liberties at a certain extent. And there's no justification for the nature of it. I think it's a stupid bill because it does violate levels of, of expression. Just because you don't like it don't mean that it should be permitted because you're opening up a floodgate to justify any way of discriminating. We know that based on the rhetoric of the police, right? A deputy police commissioner, I believe, said that, quote, they're not going after everyone who wears ski masks, only those who they believe to be criminal. What does the fuck does that mean? You know what that means. That means they're going to target and profile people. So they fucked up with the rhetoric. You should actually, if you're going to enforce a rule like this, it should be a rule that everybody must have to be subjected to.
not selecting because that basically feeds into stop and frisk. So I think that Isaiah Thomas basically contradicted his entire philosophy on criminal justice because at the end of the fucking day, sir, and to a lot of these elected officials that talk about criminal justice reform, I listened to what Kendra Brooks was saying. Strong point. Even Gautier, right? Strong points. Who are going to be targeted? You know who's going to be targeted. And saying things like, take them Jones off, young men. That's not the way. You sound like a fucking proponent of cops. And I'm not saying, look, look fuck it. It's bullshit. This is about respectability politics. This is a, this is about assuming that, one, police are not going to run rampant with this. And, and what are the liabilities? What are the liabilities? What are the liabilities? What are the lawsuits that y'all going to be responsible for when the police disrespect and, inviol and violate people? Uh, are they going to really enforce it? Are police really going to enforce this policy? Are there really going to be massive fines? And who's going to pay those fines? You're fining kids. Mm. I'm curious to see if the enforcement's going to really happen. This shit was performative. This shit was for headlines. We got national news. It's getting embarrassing in Philadelphia. From the, the remarks about damn National Guard to this mad, this, this mass ban, Philadelphia is looking real wild out here. And I get that there's crime and all this, but none of this is going to address it. I have yet to hear anybody make the correlation on how this is going to prevent crime. So they all acknowledge it's not going to prevent crime. So then why the fuck are we doing it? You're doing it because there's respectability politics. You're literally doing it to enforce respectability politics. Black men's lives, okay, because these are the ones that are going to be targeted the most behind this, are not going to improve based on whether or not they were a shysty or not. It, it's not. You, you all keep moving the goalposts. It was sagging. It was, which they didn't even make a ban on sagging. They couldn't. Okay. They could not make a ban. I remember there was a whole hate of sagging. And then sagging went away, right? This is a trend. It will go away. To make a law based on a fashion trend is fucking stupid. And this whole notion of, you know, people wearing it. You know, there is a real psychological reason why young black men do not want to wear these masks. Um, I mean, that, that do wear the masks. A lot of it has nothing to do actually with wanting to commit a crime. There is this, there is, I feel like with Gen Z, if people actually listen to kids and study them, rather, it's a lot of people that talk about youth and don't really engage the youth in ways that, you know, there's a, there is a culture right now where young black youth, and I, and I, and it's, I, I feel like it's an antisocial wave that a lot of them, I think a lot of it's to do with the pandemic, but they're socially displaced in the larger strata of this city. And policies like this continue to just diminish and disregard any of the expression and mindsets of young people. And, and what I feel like I'm seeing from a lot of them is that there's a sense of feeling anonymous. Like they don't want to be, they just are so antisocial, they don't want the engagement. And, and there's a re and I think there's about the way that they feel unseen, that it's almost this subversive way of being persona non grata in this society that don't see them anyway, or already make judgments about them anyway. And it's it's almost a subversive way of responding to that. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. And the more I talk to you, and the more I engage with and understand it, I, I get it. There is a, It's like even when I wear shades. Like, I love wearing black shades. Because sometimes I don't want people to see me 
Or I, I want to be, I don't want people to see my facial expressions or my eyes. My eyes be telling the story. It's always in my eyes. But there's a sense of like wanting to not be identified. Like I just want to just navigate sometimes without being stopped, without being bothered. And in some extent for them, it's a, a way of people kind of like backing the fuck up. But there's a psychological thing there. Um, and I think it's worth exploring and talking to. Um, it's just not all crime. I just think this, that we're also stereotyping. We're acting like everybody who wear that damn mask is a criminal. I'm sorry the police don't know how to fucking solve crimes without discriminating people. Just, just gonna say that. But lastly, the big thing for me, and this is the issue I keep having with city council on these issues, is that I don't ever hear speeches like this when they're trying to actually make tough decisions in the budget that's going to benefit the kids more than it's going to benefit policing. Like, I want to see strong stances where you you make tough decisions that's not going to support your lobbyist friends, that's not going to support, you know, all of these institutions that are problematic that you keep funding. I want to see you all make tough decisions that's going to benefit the ch the children. You can't keep giving policies that's going to ban this and ban that, but not promote anything. For all the banning of masks and recreation centers, what have y'all done to actually improve them collectively? What are y'all doing to really amplify and promote that? Where are the fucking passionate speeches where y'all going to make it rain and cut some checks for these nonprofits that are trying to serve youth? Because that's really what this is about for me. It's just like, if you're going to put a negative out, amplify. So where do the kids go? Where, what are you doing for the kids? What are you doing to increase capacity and, and the quality of life for the young people? Because you're, you're worried about the elders. Let's be clear. This bill is for a lot of these elders that people vote for. Anthony Phillips lives in Northwest and all those old church school goers that love him and going to vote for him. He's brown nosing. This is a brown nosing ass bill. And the rest of the people on council vote in favor. A lot of them are brown nosing and cow towing to that older voter population because the numbers show that they do vote overwhelmingly. Now, millennials are coming up too, but they, in their age bracket, they vote high. So they're creating policies to impress the grannies and the grandpapas. That's fine, but you also have to create a counter. Where is the passion? The same energy y'all put in these frivolous ass performative bills, you don't put in actual hardcore legislation that's going to make a fucking difference. Like this mass bill is getting all this national attention and it's not going to prevent crime. It's going to fuck up the fucking policing in this city. It's going to make it worse. And you got all these elected officials that want to give anecdotal stories and experiences. Listen, if crime is going to happen, crime is going to happen. Okay? Fix the fucking poverty. Masks are not going to improve crime. Give people jobs. Focus on fucking jobs. Focus on fucking improving this goddamn school district. Do that shit and crime will drop. Okay? A mass ban ain't the answer. It's not. Leave people to fuck alone. Leave kids to fuck alone. Like, seriously. And it's interesting, and I'm going to go here too. Anthony Phillips don't have any kids. And sometimes people make policies wagging their fingers at kids and don't have any. And I think that might shape how they think about this stuff. Everybody wants to be parental. Everybody want to be paternalistic. Everybody wants to talk about, you know, putting, projecting their kids. Well, you know, my kid, this, my kid. Listen, everybody raises their kids in a different fashion, different way. And we spend so much time, you know, I feel like that mass ban perpetuate so much of what's wrong 
with our community when it comes to trying to break systems of oppression. Because what this mask does, this mask ban do, it, it reinforces and justifies the disrespect of our people for various reasons. We, we, we just keep moving the goalpost. What's next? What, snapbacks? You're going to ban that? If there's a rise in kids wearing snapback baseball caps, y'all going to ban those too? Like, the ball never ends and stops. So, yeah, I'm not really feeling that. Not at all. So, this mayoral transition team um, is, is out here. There's been a lot of uh, talk about it. I feel like everybody I know and a mother is a part of the transition team. Even some of my friends, I see Chris Bartlett. So this Philadelphia mayoral transition team, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, look, all I, I mean, no shade. It's a team that's going to help advise Mayor Electoral Parker and her administration as they move towards, you know, installation in early January. January second, you all. January second will be the inauguration. Because they have to follow it because the Mummers Parade is on January 1st, New Year's Day. That stupid Mummers Parade is still happening. But the inauguration will be taking place on January 2nd. Um, so I will be here, of course, in Philly. Um, and I'll be doing it live with WRD Radio. So um, check it out. We'll be at the Ritz. No, not the Ritz. The Met. The Met. The inauguration is going to be at the Met. It's going to be packed. There's going to be lots of festivals. There's going to be lots of energy that day. Um, and that's going to be, I believe, on a Monday or a Tuesday, I believe. Um, but it's going to be lit. It's no, it's going to be it's going to be on a Tuesday. It's going to be on Tuesday, the second. So it's going to be really lit. It's going to be really interesting to see how people respond and react to this um, for various reasons. Um, because we've seen so much discussion and dialogue about, you know, this. So we'll see. Um, but the mayoral transition team, there's a lot of interesting things that have taken place with the team. Um, lots of people from all over the city, um, are, are participating in different departments and different places where they can advise. I think it's good. Sounds good. But what's been interesting is so many people and what's been interesting was the rollout. So over the weekend, there was like these graphics of people sharing pictures with the label. And it's like been all these announcements and like everyone's announcing and there. Some people use like the same language and things, but it just seems like almost like a cult, like eerie thing where it's like, I've joined the mayoral transition team. Like everybody I know, like every black professional I know has announced this. And I'm just sitting here looking like, well, first of all, I'm not a part of it. And, uh, you know, don't plan. So I'm a journalist, but you no know, shades of journalists who some people have done it. But like, I just decided not to, you know, just, I mean, I wasn't asked to and did not sign up to be a part. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I do. You know, I talk, I, I cover politics. I don't, you know, I don't get in the mix of it all. So there's a lot happening, um, right now. And there's so many people that are, that are excited for various reasons about this, about this, um, mayoral, um, transition team. I just thought that the graphics were a little were a little silly. Um, personally, I thought the graphics were a little silly. I thought to myself, like, well, damn, you know, you have these graphics and you know this this social media push, and you just be thinking to yourself, like, oh wow, like they they dead ass about this, <laughs> you know. I just thought it was just I've never seen that many people. I, I didn't know people was using social media like that. Like y'all got graphics and stuff. Oh y'all for real, for real. So, you know, 
I'm excited to see what this transition team going to do. It's a lot of people. We'll see. We'll keep an eye out. Um, This Young Thug trial. Um, I've been following. Y'all have been messaging me all day. Not all day, but for a couple of, couple of days, y'all been sending me DMs and stuff and trying to ask me about this. Here's what I know, okay? Jeffrey Williams is his name, okay? Young Thug. Um, there has been a racketeering and gang conspiracy trial of this man. Um, and it began last Monday. He's been in jail for 567 days, y'all. That's nearly... Uh, he's been there for over a year and some change. Um, a lot's been going on. Um, you know, there, this has been a lengthy process. But what we, what, what I know about this um, and, and, and what's been going on is that in August, a grand jury um, that was convened by a district attorney, that's the DA, Fancy T. Willis of Fulton County in Georgia. In Georgia. Now, Fan, Fan, not Fancy, um, Fanny T. Willis. Now, this is the woman who, you know, been dealing with Donald Trump. You know, um, she's the one who was one of, she's a black woman who basically, you know, got him in trouble. Now, she indicted Trump um, in a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia, and she used under the same criminal racketeering law, RICO, that she used to charge Young Thug. Um, but first, and something that many people said is her creative use of the RICO, there is YSL. Now, that is what's interesting about the RICO statute because, you know, people love to talk about RICO. Listen, RICO ain't no joke, baby, okay? It's racketeering, okay? It's a racketeering law, criminal racketeering law. You have to prove you have an enterprise um, that's doing this. So she's claiming that YSL, which prosecutors say that, that Young Thug's YSL stands for Young Slime Life. They say this is a subset of the National Bloods that was led by Young Thug, um... And apparently he ordered and oversaw crimes, including murder, attempted murder, armed robbery, witness intimidation, and drug dealing. Now, he's pleaded not guilty. He denied all those charges. Now, he was initially charged alongside 27 other people. But after a slew of guilty pleas, severed cases, he is now standing trial with five individuals. Okay? So there's a lot going on. And there's a lot of stuff that's been said in the case. Now, I've been taking some notes. You know, um, uh, there is the chief deputy district attorney for Fulton County. She said that YSL, okay, is it? Yeah, YSL, not the cologne, <laughs> but YSL uh, moved like a pack with the defendant Jeffrey Williams as its head. She said they knew who their leader was and they knew the repercussions of not obeying their leader. Um, she quoted um, Rudard Kipling's The Law of the Jungle. Rudard Kipling also wrote The Jungle Book, by the way. Um, <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Um, the lawyer, for, the lawyers for the rapper has basically um, uh, said that YSL is simply a successful record label, Young Stoner Life, um, which is under um, Warner Music Group. She says, it's a, they say it's a collection of friends and collaborators who portray a gangster image in their music and videos because tough life circumstances. But that is what it sells. They're saying that these people are not who they pretend to be, that they're pretending this because it sells. Basically, they're calling cap. They say this is all cap. They're, they're not really those people, you know. Um, the lawyer said, the lawyer, um, Young Thug's lawyer, who was Brian Steele, who apparently represented, I believe, R. Kelly, 
which shocked me. They said he is not running this criminal street gang. Um, they said that it's a rags of riches story from depression, despair, hopelessness, and helplessness to an international renown. He said, quote, the lawyer said during the trial, he is not sitting there. So Diddy continues to just fall, like massive fall. Like when it rains, it pours. And I just don't know. I don't know. It's just when it rains, it pours. It just continues to rain for Diddy. Um, and and for various reasons, like warranted. He is no longer involved with Revolt. Um, he has stepped down as chairman. Now, even though he had no major creative liberties or anything to do with um, Revolt to a certain extent, um, I mean, he was a chairman. He had to let go of that. Um, he also had to step down from a school that he was involved in, um, Capital Prep Charter School. He had to step down from Revolt and Capital Prep Charter School. Um, it's a lot. He had to step away from his media company in the charter school that he was um, he founded, which was Capital Prep Harlem. And he had to step down as chairman of Revolt, both of these following the controversies, which goes to tell you that. Look, even though there will be no criminal charges given to him for these 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 ongoing allegations. I mean, Cassie was one, but there was there's several that's come since. There will be probably financial settlements that will have to be agreed upon. The, the consequences are still there. And so we're at a place where we have to consider like what does that look like? You know, I mean, he, you know, I wrote the book The Case for Council Culture, so we know exactly what's happening right here. Um, you know, I mean, the Diageo situation with the liquor brands he was repping, they already had issues with him before all these allegations that came out. But now it just seems like the brand of Diddy is not strong. I don't know if people are going to ever look at him the same. Because, like I said, a lot of times with allegations, it's all about who was saying it and what's being said. And these are black women. And these are people that people are familiar with. These are not random folks it's just with a bone to, to, to fetch you know or catch or whatever these are people who who have been very specific and detailed in ways that people have known for a while and just kept to themselves but this is a big damn deal and um it's it's what well, it's a shame to see now this is an ask earnest question um and I'm going to read this. Um, it's it's from the straights, <laughs> the straights. Um, but it's from a guy who's been with this girl for a long time. So I'm going to read this. It's it's Nas Ernest from the straights. Hey Ernest, hope all is well. See you doing your thing. Keep keep going. I want to ask a question, and hopefully you won't name me. I am not going to name him or you, the person. But I've been with my lady. For a couple of years, we've been pretty much together. There's been some hiccups and on and off from every now and then. However, as we approach what will be our fifth year as a couple, I'm feeling the pressure to propose to her. I kind of don't want to because I feel like there's a lot wrong with her. And even though I love her, I feel like she needs more to improve upon herself. However, I feel like if I don't do it this year, she's going to leave me and I don't know who else I will be with that isn't as lovely as she is. I know this sounds complicated 
as fuck. But I would like to know your thoughts. Ooh, this is a really good question. A really good question. Um, Here's what I'll say. I feel like if you're just being with somebody based on the fact that you're scared that you're not going to be with anybody else, that's a red flag already. Um, look, seniority in a relationship is important. Being with somebody for a long time is is a, is an important thing. Having what they call chemistry or history and all that, right? But it, you know, you didn't disclose the personal issues per se. But if there's some there's some reservations there, you need to actually take those reservations seriously. This is your life. Marriage is not something that you can just jump into and not have no real clear considerations or trust or things there. Um, you know, there's a lot of people I know in my circle um, that are in situations where they may or may not get married or whatever. But I, I think it's important that if you're in a situation with somebody that is trying to work out certain aspects, I'm not saying people got to be perfect. But if you're with somebody where they are starting to learn themselves and they're going to therapy and they're there, you know, there's some uncertainties with certain aspects of them. You don't want to propose or get with somebody that isn't in a place of being able to be present for you and themselves at the same time. And what I mean by that is that I'm not saying it's got to be perfection, but there has to be a level of trust and comfort there and not feeling like obligation. Because I think if you feel like you have to do it because everyone around you was seeing it, then you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for other people. Like I, 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 you know, like, Oh, you got married young. They say to me, but I got married because I want what I wanted to do because I actually was with the person I wanted to be with. And I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything or having FOMO. There's people I know who get engaged or get in situations where they're like having that question in the back of their mind of, is this the one for me? Could there be someone else? If you got that consistent mindset consistently and you're not comfortable and happy with who you're with in the moment you're with, then you shouldn't be married. Marriage is a serious thing. You just can't be out here just getting proposed to and getting married to people just because. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to marry them. And it's just like, whatever, because you're just comfortable. Or you with them for reasons that's not about love. It's like, oh, they keep the lights on. They pay the bills. Oh, you know, if I don't marry them, I don't know how I'm going to be able to live the life that I have by myself. Like, you shouldn't be with nobody for those reasons. And there's a lot of people that do that. And then they get unhappy because you're walking into shit. You, you should not. Okay, you should not. You should, you know, I'm happy that I'm with somebody that I was with when I was broke and when I was thriving. Like, I know that they like me for me versus someone popping up when you're on your come up or people that's just around. Like, because you're scared of rejection. Because you're scared that, oh, if this person is not with you, then are you ready to go back out on the dating scene? Listen, all of that is true and real and raw. But at the end of the day, if you got some reservations and some hangups about a relationship... You should not be answering that. That's just my opinion. I would not be answering that situation if I were you. That's just my opinion. I mean, you can take it. I, you don't, you, you know, listen, what do I know? But I see a lot of the straights doing that nowadays. The straights just be out here. Oh, you know, I'm going to get in this because this is comfortable. Okay. Comfortable all day. But listen, if it ain't serving what it's serving, you know, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a problem. Just saying. Um, so movies, 
Obviously, there's only one movie I care to talk about. I mean, there's other films that are coming out, and I'll be following them. You know, Oscar films are coming out heavy. Award season is upon us. We're already seeing some some precursors and things. But I am here to talk about one film that came out this weekend that is definitely um, killing it, and that's Beyonce. Um, she tops the box office. Um, you know, she's number one at the box office with a twenty-one million dollar debut, uh, which is which is ridiculously well for a film that came out right after the Thanksgiving Day hump. So she has a number one movie in America now, twenty-one million dollar debut. Um, and I mean, what a what a time! I mean, I was there. I went. Renaissance film was incredible. Um, it was great. And here's the thing I think about it. I went to see the AMC. I went to the prime seating with the ridiculous sound, surround sound. Look, now that I got these new pair of ears, I am literally like blasting them to the max to hear the greatest things. I mean, it's just been great. The film is so good. It's it's documentary slash concert. Every song, if you went to the Renaissance tour, every song from the Renaissance tour she performs for this film. So it is a long film. It's about two hours and 30 minutes. It's long, but it's fun. And it feels like it goes at a good pace because the energy and excitement never ends. Like, you know how you watch certain movies or it gets a little dull and you're like, okay, this is boring. I'm I'm dozing. She she just knows how to pick up. So throughout, the way the flow is, without telling details, she does you know, opening part. She opens up. She does like the concert, but then she takes it back to, you know, the making of it. So she talks about the making of the show. She talks about her personal life and her personal experiences, her children's experiences, talking about the decisions she made for the show. She talks about Uncle Johnny, but she does this through different breaks throughout the show to, to highlight the changes and the differences. It's very, very good. I think Beyonce, the reason why I like this the most is because I feel like she's at her, like Beyonce's comfortable and she's cursing and she's, she's just, she's just doing her. And like I said to people for a long time that I always felt like Beyonce always was holding back over the years. And oh my goodness, the arguments I used to get into with certain people that just did not expect greatness from their great artists. But I always knew, I was like, there is, she's not giving it. She's not giving us her all. And I'm not about performance wise, just who she is and how she feels. Like I remember that that documentary she did for HBO like about 10 years ago called Life But Was But a Dream or something. And it was like a documentary of her in a concert or something. I hated it. It was so corny. It was so scripted. It just was not good. And a lot of it was because she just was just trying to, again, she was trying to overthink. I feel like with this documentary, this film, she's not overthinking it. She's like really lax. She's in, she's embracing imperfection, which is kind of funny because her version of imperfection is like a lot of people's five star top of the top. So it's like, I can't even say she's embracing imperfection, but she's just, she's comfortable. She's very cozy in her skin, as she would describe. She's very comfortable with who she is and she's very cozy. Um, the, the standout for me outside of her and her story is Blue Ivy. I just think Blue Ivy is just a star. I mean, she just takes it. Um, every scene she's in, which she's not acting, but she's just she's just bright, and we get a real glimpse of her. And 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 I, I thought that was uh, her story, her journey, her confidence, her her ability. I mean, first of all, she's like eleven years old, so she shouldn't be having all of this pressure. But she leans into it, and she's the next big thing. And I'm, we better watch out for her. She's about to come in here and shut it down. She could do a lot of things, but I just love it. And 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 her relationship with um. 
her mother and Beyonce. Just that bond they have as mother and daughter was just great throughout the film. Um, there is new music. At the end of the film, there is a new song. And so if you haven't seen it yet, stay after for the credits to hear the new song, which you can also hear now. It's called My House. But for us, the people, I went the, the advance screen the before the debut, like that Thursday night before the, it came out. The Lit Brothers and I all went. We got our um our, our Renaissance you know, mugs and, 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 and popcorn buckets and our posters. We got all of our, our, our things because I think they're only putting out the posters, I believe, only for the first weekend. I'm not sure. But we even with Taylor Swift, I got my Taylor Swift movie poster. I got all of my my buckets and things. So, you know, there's there's things to go around in the house. Um, what I will say, though, about the Renaissance bucket was that it's a nice tin bucket. The Taylor Swift was a hard plaster, which was still cute, but I liked I personally like the Beyonce bucket more. I felt like the popcorn bucket was this, it, it lasts longer. I just, I, I just thought it was just a better quality. Um, and the cup too was cute. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I thought the film was phenomenal. I thought it was great. I thought it was very memorable. It was very fun. Um, upbeat, inspirational, just really great. Two thumbs up for me. Um, other things, um, in music, so last episode, I talked about how there was a missing J-Lo album that we all heard about and it disappeared. Well, J-Lo's team has responded back to the inquiry and the album is coming out next year. Ooh, waste for bated breath. All I've waited for was a new J-Lo album. <laughs> well, it's coming. It's coming, y'all. The J-Lo album is not missing. It's coming next year. <laughs> she hasn't released a new original album they said in 10 years this will be the first J-Lo album in like 10 years apparently like she has not done an original music album in like 10 years so new J-Lo music y'all get ready get ready for the new J-Lo music um, so other things <laughs> I am doing the most um, but I really do I really do love I mean I wonder what Jalen knows about Diddy. She didn't tell us some things about Diddy because they dated, okay? She was with him when he was Puff Daddy. Don't forget it. Um, but there are a lot of year-end lists in music and more to come. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what one of the big end-year lists that happened. Um, there was two. Rolling Stones did a Best 100 Songs of 2023. I'm going to tell you their songs, their best songs, um, which were interesting to me. But I'm going to go to the top 10. I feel like... That's where I'll start. I don't want to go through like all 100. Rolling Stones have an extensive list, but I'm going to go with their top 10 that I want to talk about. Um, so coming in at number 10 was Victoria Monet on My Mama. Number nine is Billie Eilish, What Was I Made For? Number eight is Little Yachty, Strike, Holster. Number seven, Olivia Rodrigo, Get Him Back. Six, New Jeans, Super Shy. Five, Shakira and Bizarp. Bizarp, Music Sessions, Volume 53. Number four, Zach Bryan featuring Casey Musgraves, I Remember Everything. Number three is Lana Del Rey, A&W. Number two, Pink Panthers featuring Ice Spice, Boys a Liar, Part 2. Definitely was a good beat. And number one is Esblon, Armado, and Peso Lumba, Ella Balia Sola. Interesting number one choice. Rolling Stones wanted to shake the table with that number one. It's a cute song. Okay, it's in Spanish. And there has been a Musica Mexicana music vibe for quite a minute. So I am definitely here for the um the, the embrace. There's been a Latin music craze for the past five years. 
um, that I personally have enjoyed to see because we don't, you know, we, we don't give enough love to the Becky G's and the Carol G's, okay? And Rosalia, who apparently is the lead actor from um, The Bear, Jeremy. I said, oop, oop, is that what I'm seeing? They dating Rosalia and him? Jeremy Allen White, I think his name is. They're dating? Interesting. I ain't mad at it. So, um, but I want to get to these albums. So they also did their 100 best albums of 2023. Here are the top 10 that I think are worthy discussing. I was surprised. I must say I was surprised by the top 10. But here we are. Number 10, Zach Bryan. Zach Bryan. Number 9, Victoria Monet, Jaguar 2. Number 8, Billy Woods and Kenny Siegel, Maps. Number 7, Mitski, The Land is Inhospitable, and So Are We. Well, that's true. Number 6, Paramore, This Is Why. What a great comeback. Number 5, Olivia Rodrigo, Guts. Number 4, Little Yachty, Let's Start Here. They really like this Little Yachty over there. Number 3, Tanny, Data. Number 2, Boy Genius, The Record. This is a really good album, y'all. Underrated. And honestly, if there was any upset the Grammys for album of the year, Boy Genius could probably pull it off. Now, this is that group with Phoebe Coles on it. For those, not Phoebe Coles. Um, Phoebe, um, I forget her name. She is so good. Phoebe Bridgers. Phoebe Bridgers. That's what it is. Phoebe Bridgers. Um, and then last but not least, at number one, SZA, SOS. I love this as an album. Control was a great album, which came out a little over five years ago. And we all thought that that was a great debut. What a great debut album that Control was by SZA. But, oh my goodness, SOS kills it. It was full of surprises. She rocks, she raps. She takes rumors and rumblings about herself and lead on and head on. She enjoys herself. This is an album that was, was great. Um... Mm, 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 mm. She was great. She was awesome. She was everything. And honestly, I would like her to win album of the year. A black woman has yet to win album of the year in 25 years since Lauren Hill won back in the late 90s for the miseducation of Lauren Hill. It's been a while. No Beyonce's, no Alicia Keys, no other black women who've killed music. Jennifer Hudson, um, Rihanna, you know. Other eligible great black women who could have won album of the year or something, right? No. So we got to fix that. We, we definitely got to fix that. I, I hope that SZA can pull it off. It will be bittersweet because some people say that why haven't, you know, we had, you know, a Beyonce, you know, win. But listen, you know, different things happen. So, you know, um, you know, we're going to see what is given. Um, so other 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 um, interesting things. Um that I was thinking about um, overall. Um, Zeus for TV. I've been watching Zeus. Um, I haven't been watching that much TV. I haven't had that much time to watch TV. I've just been catching up on baddies. But I haven't been watching that much TV. I feel like that's going to change when I get home for the holidays. When I go back to Houston for two weeks at the end of December. But I've, I, listen, life has been its own TV show. So I've only been catching up on Zeus. I don't know where my love and hip hop is. Where is love and hip hop? When I need it. Where's a where's a reunion? Where's something? I just been watching like throwbacks, to be honest. So there's that. Well, coming up this week, there's a lot going on. Um, I'm gonna tell you all this, and this is between us girls on this podcast. 
But let me be clear. The Eater Awards are coming out this week. The Eater Philly Awards. Stay tuned. It's coming out this week. Also, I'm going to Virginia. Dr. Parks will officially be Dr. Parks. She'll be graduating in Virginia. We're going to Richmond to celebrate her. Um, there's a lot of birthdays. All of those Sagittarius in my life are having birthdays coming up in these next couple of days. My good girl, Jessica Anderson and Nina Blaylock, who I love to death. Um, Lauren Footman. All of my girls are all having birthdays. All of my Sagittarius. Cindy Wynn, who lives in Houston. She's also around that same time. All of these Sagittarius are having birthdays coming up in the next couple of days. So shout out to y'all all advance. Happy birthday to all of y'all advance. And I look forward to celebrating y'all in my own special way. And there's also a special event that's happening this, this upcoming week. You all will know I'm going to be meeting someone that I've always wanted to meet. I hope I can get a picture with them. If I don't, I'll tell you all the story anyway, but I'm hoping I can get a picture. I'm not going to say who it is. Fingers crossed. But when you find out, you're going to be like, oh, shit. And I hope I can. But it's going to be really, really cool. And it's happening in Philly. And I was able to make it happen. I was able to get into this. I'm going to tell I have a whole story about this, but I have to let it play out. That's the theme. Let it play out. Because I'm standing on business. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm watching the chips fold as they fold. But it's going to be exciting, you know, big, huge week into December. Keep your ears clean. Keep the earwax out. And as always, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Earnestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.